B'Shem Hashem Na'asev V'Natzliach, Shiru Torah, Bukhim Abayim. Thank you very much, everybody that came from all over the place, Shechem Vashechet Kechem, for coming to learn Torah. Tonight's uh, Shiru will be for Ilu Nishmat Israel David Ben Eliyahu Chaim. Also for the Atzlacha uh, Rabah for Karanvir Dilan Ben Jazwinder Dilan. Also for Atzlacha Rabah for Yeshaya Ben Tamara and also for Zivu Gagun. And also for Atzlacha Rabah and Nachat Ruach from the children for Shimshon Ben Tanya Tamar. Also for a... Um, uh, David uh, Diamond, 1963, our sponsor, and all of Am Yisrael and all the righteous Noahais that continue to contribute, continue to support us, continue to listen to our shurim, most importantly. Whoever needs it. And Bezat Hashem, we get close to Akadosh Baruch Hu another, uh, another way today through the uh, shiur. So uh, the topic in general was uh, to getting over our past. But what does it really mean to get over our past? The uh, prophet Yeshaya says in the uh, first chapter of Yeshaya, he says, Yisrael lo yada lo itbonen. says that Kadosh Baruch Hu says to the prophet that an ox an ox knows his owner, and a chamor, a donkey, knows his master. But Israel, meaning Am Israel, does not know. My people does not comprehend. A person comes to this world unless he's fortunate enough to already have a neshama teorah already from a previous gilgul, and he's only here, or she's only here for a small tikkun. He comes here to this world to do tshuva. He comes to this world to serve HaKadosh Baruch Hu in a much better way than he or she did in the previous Gilgul. Some of us had the uh, fortune of growing up in religious families. Some of us had the fortune of growing up in non-religious families. Some of us had the fortune of not growing up in even Jewish families. But the goal for all of us is exactly the same, to serve HaKadosh Baruch Hu and to do tshuva. Now the problem is that doing tshuva whether it's doing tshuva from somebody that's born into a religious family but needs to serve Hashem much better than he did his whole life in the previous carnation, because that's the reason why he's here. He didn't come here to this world, and she didn't come here to this world to go pray three times a day and uh, you know, eat shulint on Shabbat and then uh, you know, go to Olam It doesn't work that way. Every one of us has a tikkun of some kind, some for money, some for Abu Dazarah, some for Limut Torah, some for Zerah Levatala, some for this, some for that. Every one of us has an issue. And we all have to fix it, things from this world, and also things from the previous carnation. Some people came here already into a religious family, they got somewhat of a head start. Some would say it's opposite, because their way of, uh, their religion, uh, um, religiosity was uh, actually affected in a negative way, because of their surroundings. On the other hand, some of us came from families that were not religious at all, and we had to overcome all of the different obstacles to abandon our past in order to adopt a completely new reality. And even more so for someone that came from a different religion. And the uh, Arizal says that uh, the people that convert, many of them were actually formerly Jews. They were formerly Jews that uh, made enough sins that HaKadosh Baruch Hu punished them by kicking them out of Am Yisrael and reincarnating them as non-Jews. Usually this happens if somebody 
as uh, sins with non-Jews, meaning a, a, you know, a Jewish guy with a non-Jewish girl. He doesn't do tshuva, he comes back either as a dog or he comes back as a non-Jew. A, non a Jewish girl decides she wants to have a Jose as her uh, boyfriend, she wants to have Charlie as her boyfriend. She come back either as a dog or as a non-Jew or both. And it's uh, not an easy tikkun. Why? Because the whole goal of them coming to this world is to do tshuva, meaning to convert. To convert and converting anyone that's gone through it, it's not easy. Not easy. So, but that's just the first step. That's just the first step. Most people, they think, oh, okay, so I did tshuva, I started uh, keeping Shabbat, I converted. I started being uh, modest, I'm finished, right? Anyone that's been doing tshuva for at least five or six, seven, eight years knows that's only the beginning. Why? Because that was the first test. That was the commercial to get you in. But then comes all the problems of your past. What problems of your past? All of a sudden, your friends from high school that you haven't seen in 15 years show up at your door. Hey, what's up, man? What are you doing? How you doing? What's going on? I just moved in next door. Maybe we could be boys. Maybe we could go back to the, you know, to do this. You could, Ooh, hey, I, I moved on with my life. What moved on with your life? He's reminding you about your life. He reminds you of who you really are. He, he thinks he really knows who you really are. And all of a sudden, your girlfriend that used to go clubbing with, she said, hey, girlfriend, how are you? Let's go. Let's go out. I got this guy. You're not married, right? Right? Okay, even if you are, listen, we're just friends. And all of a sudden she wants to have coffee, she wants to have tea, she's always thirsty, and she always wants you to join her to drink together. And all of a sudden, all of these people from the past, they want to join you, they want to befriend you, and if you don't want to join them, then they make you feel bad. Oh, so you better than me now? Well, we're not good enough for you anymore? You, you, you forgot where you came from? And they remind you of where you came from. I used to be a little, you know, bug like them. And you did nothing and you'd sin and you did this. And you did that. They don't want you to move on. They don't want you to move on. There was a guy one time that went to Cheder, Yeshiva, with the uh, Rabbi Nachman Breslev. Now he won in his life and Rabbi Nachman Breslev also went in his life. He became some type of merchant, made some money, ta ta ta. Rabbi Nachman Breslev became Rabbi Nachman Breslev. Now many people don't realize Rabbi Nachman, he died young, 36 years old. He did all of what he did to change the whole world in his capacity, 36 years old. Suffered a lot. And one time, they, after he already became famous, they announced Rabbi Nachman is coming to town. Of course, everybody gathered, everybody was uh, excited. And this guy says, who's this Rabbi Nachman? I've never heard of him. Like, no, you don't know Rabbi Nachman, this, that. He goes, oh, yeah, of course I know. We're like this. We went to, you know, we were in the Cheder together. Me and him, we used to share lunch. 30 years ago, you know, we used to share lunch. We used to sit next to each other. So he thinks that, you know, 25, 30 years have passed. But we're still boys. So Rabbi Nachman Breslev comes with his whole entourage, all the Hasidim are following him. And this guy, he sees him. Even though he's got money and he's got whatever he's got, no one cares about him. Everybody cares about the tzaddik. Tzaddik showed up, the whole entourage. Everybody just wants to just look at his face, maybe get a bracha, kiss his hand, something, anything. To this day, people don't understand what tzaddikim are. They're willing to pay millions of dollars for anything that the tzaddik owned. The little big pen, big pen that you could buy from a 99 cent store, 
maybe even for less. I don't know, with inflation, maybe it's $5 now. But the, uh, the big pen, for the one that was owned by one of the Gedoledo from the previous generation, was sold for $2 million. $2 million. The Stendel for the Drav Kanievsky, Allah Shalom, also sold for a fortune. All of these different things. Why? Because people don't understand what tzaddikim are, they understand that the tzaddik puts a certain amount of significance into that tool. You have something, you have a share of it, it's very good. Now again, we don't serve it, we don't worship it, we don't do anything like that. This is not like something that you're going you to start to put that pen in your hand and all of a sudden you're going to start writing svarim. It's not going to happen. It's still a pen. But it has a certain level of uh, significance in the world. And everybody wants to get some type of share from the tzaddik. This guy on the other hand, doesn't see a tzaddik. He says, this is just the same guy from 30 years ago. But maybe he forgot who he is. So let me remind him. So he comes with the intention of reminding Rabbi Nachman Rebeslev that he's, you know, we're boys. We used to eat lunch together. You know, we used to play, climb the walls together, cause trouble. She wants to remind him. So you know, like some people, they, they're very aggressive. Like, they don't just say hello, like hello with the word. Like, they give you like a hug, but they don't just give you a hug. They give you a hug like they're a bear. And it's not like a bear that's like a friendly bear. It's like it almost he wants to eat you too. Like one of those people. So he comes to Rabbi Nachum Rebeslev with his big Jahash hand, and he shakes his hand and, hug, and shakes Rabbi Nachman. To, Yay, remember me, how are you? And all of a sudden, everybody sees this in front of their eyes. Initially, they're seeing Rabbi Nachum Rebeslev shaking inappropriately. This guy is hanging, you know, shaking his hand like he's one of his boys. But a half a second later, the other guy can't move. Stops moving. Rabbi Nachman Rebeslev finished shaking his hand and walks away. The other guy stays like this. And he can't move. He's frozen. People walk away and they, start, they see the guy still there. What's wrong with you? Move. Nothing. He realized he made a mistake. HaKadosh Baruch Hu didn't like that uh, he touched the tzaddik in a certain way. And only until then did he realize that uh, maybe they grew up together but you could also grow. You could also grow. And only then did he start realizing that Rabbi Nachman was not the same little kid that he knew from 30 years ago. The problem is that most of us have some friends, have some family, have some people that we know that are like that guy. They don't want us to move on. They don't want us to grow. And for the first time in their, your life, the first time, they care about your life and what your choices are. 20, 30 years you know them, they never cared what you eat. 20, 30 years you know them, they never cared what you wear. No one ever asked you, hey, are you sure you're going to be hot with that outfit? Or cold? No one ever asked you. Middle of winter, 5 degrees outside in New York. You're walking around with a t-shirt. Nobody says, maybe you should get a jacket. No one cares. Oh, you know what, it's pretty hot. Yeah, it's cool. No one cares. All of a sudden, you're religious, you want to be modest? Hey, hey, why are you wearing a jacket? What, somebody died? No, nobody died. So why are you wearing a jacket? It's the middle of the summer. What's wrong with the jacket? What, is it a zoo? It's, it's illegal? I don't know, it's just kind of weird to walk around next to you wearing a jacket. So you wear a jacket too. It's, you know, it's a big scam, they sell it in stores, not just one jacket. I didn't make it. All of a sudden, everybody cares that you're wearing a dress. Why are you wearing a dress? You going to a party? No. Where are you going? To the supermarket. Why are you wearing a dress? Because I need to wear clothes. I don't know, I figured that, you know, people wouldn't appreciate if I just walk around with no clothes on, so I put something on. 
Yeah, but why are you wearing a dress though? Why don't you wear something else? Why do you care what I wear? Did I ask you before you, before you came over, hey, what are you wearing? What are you wearing? What, did I ask you? No. So why do you care? All of a sudden they care. 20, 30 years, they never cared what you wear. They never cared if you're going to a party or you're going to smoke crack, but all of a sudden you tell them that you're going to shul and they care. Why? Because the Yetzirah has employees. Has employees. He has to send his employees to go do the work. While you are working for him, and I was working for him because we were making so many sins, we were the employees. He didn't send anybody to us to ask us what we're wearing and what we're eating or what we're drinking or what we're doing. We were the employees. We were the one doing it to everybody else without even realizing it. We were on autopilot. Once you decided to quit, it's like I said, well, hold on a second, wait a minute. You're going to betray me like that? He's going to send you five employees, ten employees to go recruit you. All of a sudden, everybody likes you. Everybody doesn't like you. Everybody wants to be next to you. Everybody can't stand you. Everybody this, everybody that. Everybody's confused. But either way, they can't leave you alone. They all of a sudden all care about who you're deciding to marry. Until now, you got married to a new girl every single week. No one cared. Until now, you married all the non-Jewish guys on the block. No one cared. Until now, you did every single thing that you can possibly want. No one cared. In fact, they said, you know what? You're only 12 years old. You have five boyfriends. Good job for you. Good for you. Enjoy yourself. All of a sudden, you're 19 years old, little pure girl. Finally, you decide to do tshuva. You want to get married. Oh, maybe you're too young. What too young? I was already married for five guys at 12 years old. What too young? How come I wasn't too young at 12? All of a sudden, everybody cares when you're 19. You finally want to get normally married. Why? Because back then, you were the employee. Now you're trying to be the boss. So you see, Rabotai, to do tshuva, it's a multi-step process. And one of the things that a person needs to realize is that this multi-step process is not easy. It's not intended to be easy. But we, are, we do need to be aware that there is a process, there is a way to pass it. It all stands on the shoulders of Torah. The same thing that got a person out of the confusion of the world is the same thing that's going to keep him out of there. And one of the most important things that I learned from Rabbi Akiva was when we did that movie called The World of Lies, we did a whole shiur about it. It's all based on the Gemara that says that Rabbi Akiva once went to go visit some king in order to convince him to cancel a decree. And because the king heard that Rabbi Akiva was, one of the, was the leader of the Jewish people, he wanted to honor him by sending him prostitutes to his room. And Rabbi Akiva saw these prostitutes and vomited the whole night. Just threw up the whole night nonstop. He got to a point of holiness to such an extent that sins and lust that the world is chasing became disgusting to him, just like sins are disgusting to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So now, one of the things that you see many times in, in the world of Baalei Tshuvah, in the world of Judaism altogether, in the world altogether, Jews, Gentiles, is that even when people change, change their ways, they're no longer violating Shabbat. They're no longer stealing in business. They're no longer doing a lot of different things. It's not often that they become disgusted from their past. Usually they pick a new way because they figure the new way is better. I used to steal, now I make honest money. 
I used to hang out with five girls, now I'm married to one. Now if you ask him, so how was, you, how was your life when you were 18 years old? All of a sudden he's proud. Oh, when I was your age, 18 years old, I had five girlfriends. He's proud of it. He's proud of you had five girls. So meaning that, yeah, but you have one wife now. So what, you're not happy now? No, no, I'm happy. So why are you still proud of five girls? Why are you proud of five guys? Like, I don't... So, so wait, did you do tshuva or you didn't do tshuva? The Rambam says that tshuva is multiple steps. It's four steps. The first step is abandoning your sin. Second step is make offense. Make offense, a spiritual offense, not to repeat the sin. Meaning, you know that you sin every time you go to a certain place. You sin every time you hang out with certain people. You sin every time you see certain things. Don't do it. Make offense. Learn enough about the subject in order not to repeat the offense. Step number three, regret the sin. Rabbi Saimi Salan says, wait a minute, how come the regretting the sin is not step number one? You're stopping the sin, shouldn't you be regretting it? No. Why? Because you didn't stop it because you don't like it. You didn't stop it because you're disgusted by it. You didn't leave the non-Jewish girlfriend because you think she's disgusting. If she converted tomorrow, you would marry her. In fact, if she wore a certain outfit, you'd marry her. You didn't abandon Mustafa, your boyfriend, for five years because you're disgusted. All of a sudden, you don't want an Arab boyfriend. No. You didn't leave him. You left him because you figured there's a better choice somewhere else. Better because of this, better because of that. So you didn't stop the sin. None of us stopped the sin because we're disgusted by the sin. We stopped because we figured there's a better choice out there. But once a person distanced himself enough from the sin, from the things that are disgusting in the eyes of Hashem, all of a sudden they realize, hold on a second, I used to do that? I used to do all that? I used to do this? I used to... All of a sudden they start realizing that maybe it was disgusting. Hence the reason Rabbi Yisraeli Salan says, the Rambam said that disgusting is something that's required in order for you to really repent. Step number three, which is to be sorry for the sin. You're not sorry about something that you like. You're not sorry about something that you enjoy. You're not sorry about something that you think is, is admirable. You're only sorry about things that are revolting you. They may not revolt everybody else. But the key is to understand is that we have to get to a point where we are disgusted by our sins. That takes time. And that time is, needs to be spent sanctifying ourselves, making ourselves holier. And one of the ways to make yourself holier is to distance yourself from your past. Meaning that for the tshuva to continue growing and for it to succeed, we're obligated to distance ourselves from all of those people that want to keep us there. So that means that there are going to be some relationships that will grow as a result of your tshuva. And there's certainly going to be some relationships that will end as a result of the tshuva. Now some people say, yeah, but I don't want to end my relationship with so-and-so. She's been my friend since I was three years old. We, we, we grew up together. We played in the sand together. Okay, but you're 30. You, play, you still play with sand together? A lot of things have changed in the last 27 years. Yeah, but we're friends. Okay, so what do you have in common now? If it's not sand and she's not sharing her bucket with you, what do you still have in common? You want to get married and have a Jewish family. She wants to go night clubbing. One of you is going to win. After you get married, your husband, you probably want him to just look at you. 
So are you going to invite her in a nightclub clothes? She came at 2 o'clock in the morning, right after she hung out with Jose and Steve. Husband number one, husband number two for the night. Or better yet, she's going to bring one of those guys she met for the night because he's really, really nice. And he gave her a ride all the way to your house at 2 o'clock in the morning. What are you going to talk to her about? She wants to go nightclubbing. You want to have a family. What is there in common? Okay, so yeah, you played with buckets and sand 27 years ago. Now what? A person has to realize that there are certain relationships that simply cannot continue if you want to continue. And therefore, getting over your past is a required step for every single person if they want to get to where they want to be. Now, of course, the Yetzirah knows everything I just told you. So he was prepared before we even gave this lecture. And he said, you know what? One of these days, these smart Jewish people are going to realize they cannot stay friends with all of these people. And they're going to move far away. So the Yetzirah says, okay, so I'll send them new friends. And when they rejected the new friends, they say, you know what? I'm going to send them somebody really trustworthy. Who? The rabbis. And he's going to send them a rabbi that's going to be even worse than their worst friend. Why? Because the rabbi is going to cool off their tshuva. They want to wear kisurosh with the mitpachat. The rabbi says, why are you covering your hair? It's so pretty. They want to cover their body and say, why are you looking like an uh, Arab? They want to go to a shield Torah. He says, no, why don't you go to hang out with the community? Be uh, one with everybody. Everything that they want to do that they heard in the shield that got them closer to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the rabbi says no. They want to serve Hashem and the rabbi says, what is serve Hashem? Hashem needs you. He needs you. He created you, therefore He needs you. That's what they say. And I wish it was only one rabbi that would say this because that's what it was for a while. But today, unfortunately, it's a new epidemic, much worse than Corona and the monkey virus combined. So... The Yetzirah works in all types of ways in order to get a person away from the direction that he wants to go. And one of the main tools that the Yetzirah works on in this generation is convincing everybody that there are no consequences. To such an extent that the consequences are minimized by telling people either that everyone goes to heaven at the end anyway, or the punishment is just embarrassment, which pretty much all of us get embarrassed at least once a week for accident and on purpose anyway. Some people even bring embarrassment to themselves on purpose. Or they say it's a limited amount of time. It's so short. You know, what's 12 months out of a trillion years? So they minimize it to such an extent it is that if it does not exist... Now, of course, over the last eight or so years, we've worked very hard to bring the consequences in front of people's eyes from the sources, from the Gemara, from the Midrashim, from the Chumash. And some people, most people, it was enough for them. But then the Yetzirah attacked again. And the Yetzirah said, sent them another rabbi and said, what? What did he say? Reshit Chochmah? What he said? Gemara? Midrash? No, you don't have to believe every Midrash. 
And they'll even give you a source of how you don't have to believe every Midrash. Oh, Gemara? No, he's misunderstanding that Gemara. He's misunderstanding. Yeah, but it says Gehenom's forever over there. No, no, he's misunderstanding it. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He's about Jew, he doesn't know anything. And it convinced you that everything that warmed you up again to go serve Hashem, to become modest again, to leave the boyfriend, to leave the girlfriend, to leave the sins, to leave, leave and abandon all the garbage, they convince you, nah, you're making a mistake. One of the best proofs that I know that this is what they do is because this is one of the things that happened to me. There was this Rasha Merusha called himself a rabbi. Who used to come to my office every single week. Sometimes two, three, four, five times a week and he wouldn't leave until I gave him money. This Menuval literally would stay in my office until we got money. He would not leave. I tell him, listen, I got to work. I got business. I got this. Okay. And he just sit there. He's like, how long is he here for? That's my said. How long is he here? Five hours. What is he doing? I don't know. He's just sitting there. He has nothing else to do. Until you gave the guy money, he wouldn't leave. It's like a, it's like a treat. You gave him a treat. Okay. And he runs away. One day, a few years passed, I did Shuvah Baruch Hashem, I changed, I did a lot of good things, started teaching Shtabach Shimolad. He sends me a, a, a message. What is this you're talking about? Fear of heaven. Women shouldn't uh, wear uh, wigs, they should wear mitbachat. You, you're learning wrong. So, but this is what the Allah says, and I gave him the sources. So what did this Menuval say? Ah, the biggest mistake you ever made in your life was doing this tshuva of yours. I say, excuse me, Rabbi? What? What do you mean, biggest mistake? Because, nah, you were much nicer when you didn't do tshuva. I said, yeah, but you realize I was a mechalel Shabbat, I was this, I was that, you know, list a few crimes that I was a criminal of. He goes, yeah, it's okay, in this generation, the only mitzvah you need to do as a Jew is give money. That's it. I said, you know you're a kofir, right? Rabotai Karim, today this Yetzara has messengers. Those messengers will sometimes have a beard, sometimes have a kisuros, sometimes they look religious, sometimes they don't look religious. They come in all shapes and sizes. All of them have the same intention, to cool you off. To cool you off from the path that you already got on. I don't believe any of you showed up here to a lecture that I'm giving because you've never heard of me before, because you want to stay exactly the same. Usually people that come to my shulim and watch my shulim, typically they're inspired in some way or another to change, to improve, to get better, to, to, to do something different than what they're already doing. Many people, Baruch Hashem, have changed, have improved, have done tshuva, and have gone closer to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, but there's still a lot of work to do. And I was thinking about it yesterday, I was talking to the Rabbanit, and Mamash... The more I think about it, the more I regret thinking about it because it makes me very sad. Very few things make me sad because Baruch Hashem, I'm stuck in the world of Torah and Torah makes me happy. But when I think about the status of certain people, either that I know or that I don't know, that don't have Torah in their life. I don't think there's anything more miserable than that. Now, of course, if you would have told me this 15, 20 years ago, I would say, why? Why? Because I'm not reading a book? Because I'm not reading a book every day, that means that uh, I'm miserable? No, I'm happy. I go to clubs, I go make money, I go do this, I go do that. And the truth is, Rabbi when you look at the, you look at the Gemara, 
it tells you everything. It tells you everything. There's a Gemara, it's my favorite Gemara, and I read it every day. Or at least I try to, but usually I read it every day, sometimes multiple times a day. Anybody that learns, learns Gemara probably learns this Gemara also every single day without realizing it. It's the Gemara in Masechet Brachot. Gemara in Masechet Brachot, it uh, starts off in a, uh, page 28b, and uh, it starts in a Mishnah. Mishnah in the name of Rabbi Nechunya. Rabbi Nechunya ben Achana would pray when he entered the Bet Midrash, and also another prayer after he left. So the people over there said to him, what, what, what kind of prayer are you doing? When you come in, when you leave, what, what is this prayer? And he says, I pray when I enter that uh, I don't make any mistakes, and no mistakes, no mishaps will come through me. And when I leave, I thank Hashem for my portion. So the Gemara says, what kind of prayer is this? What is the actual words? What's the text? What's the text of this prayer? It says, May be your will, Hashem, my God, that a mishap not come about through me, and that I, may I not stumble in a matter of alacha, and cause my colleagues to make fun of me, to rejoice over me, as a side note, why, why, is, why is he praying that he doesn't make a mistake and other people make fun of him? It's not because he's afraid that people are going to make fun of him because he's going to be embarrassed. It's because there's also an halacha that says, Someone that takes pride in his friend's downfall loses his share of the olam haba. You saw your friend get embarrassed. He, let's say, he gave a shiul. Or he just lost all of his money. Or uh, his wife just embarrassed him in public. You, you, you're enjoying that? Ah, you see what happened to him? Bye-bye, Olam Abba. Deleted. They have to do tshuva to get it back. By the way, that means comedians, you're not going to see an Olam Abba. Why? Because comedians make a business out of making, people, making fun of people. And the reality is that the Torah hates this. Kadosh Baruch hates this. Why are you gaining out of somebody else's downfall? So a person says, listen, I'm going to go learn Torah, but Hashem, I won't make any mistakes in my learning, and then that's going to cause my friends that are not exactly uh, so uh, particular about things, that they're going to make fun of me. Why? Because I'm afraid they're going to go to Gainom. I don't want them to go to Gainom because of me. And then he says, the prayer continues, and may I not say regarding something that is impure, that it's pure, or that something that's pure, to say that it's impure, meaning don't make mistakes that are the opposite. Say that something is allowed and really it's not allowed. Saying something that's not allowed and really it's allowed. Somebody says, hey, listen, Rabbi, can I drive on Shabbat? Oh, yeah, sure, sure. As long as you go to shul. No, obviously no. You're not allowed to go to Shabbat. But if somebody says, listen, Rabbi, uh, I have to go to the hospital, save somebody's life. Can I do that on Shabbat or let them die? Of course, you have to. It's a mitzvah. So you have to know when allowed, when not allowed. To go save somebody's life on Shabbat, it's a mitzvah. The whole Torah is put on hold. Whether it's driving or flying or whatever it is. If somebody, let's say for example, is having a baby, that's considered life risk. Anyone that is involved is allowed to put Shabbat on hold. Meaning if she has a helper, that helper is allowed to drive on Shabbat to go take her to the hospital to help deliver the baby or anything like that. In fact, even our husband that's not doing anything. He's not delivering the baby. He's not even telling her to breathe. He's not telling her anything. He himself needs breathing. He himself is nervous. 
he's also allowed to put Shabbat on hold. Why? Because he makes her feel comfortable. By being next to her in the, in the, in the hospital, being next to her in the ambulance, it's going to calm her down a little bit. He's allowed to also put Shabbat on hold for a little bit. Now he's not allowed to go Shabbat on hold and then go back in the car and then go to the casino and then go you know, buy some falafel. That he's not allowed to do. So you need to know when's allowed, when's not allowed. So the Chacham says that I pray that I don't say things that are allowed, that's not allowed, things that are not allowed, they're allowed. Also that my colleagues don't stumble in a matter of law that would lead me to rejoice over them. Meaning, I don't want us, my friends, to go learn Torah. They make mistakes. I say, ah, you guys are idiots. You don't know anything. No, then I lose my olam haba. So I don't want to make that mistake either. And upon exiting, when I finish studying, that's the prayer that he does when he gets in. And this is, by the way, Alakha, Shuchan Aruch, and Rambam. Everybody's supposed to do this. That's why it's a, it's a custom of Israel to have in the, uh, in the inside cover of the Gemara, on the right side, you see these two prayers I'm telling you. You're supposed to do them every single day. Now, if somebody learns Gemara, they know already everything I just told you. If somebody doesn't learn, they're introduced to these two new prayers that they're supposed to do every day. Now, what about what kind of prayer do you do when you leave? The prayer that he does when he leaves is why I said this whole thing. Because this prayer is relevant to everything that we just said until now. What's the prayer that he does when he leaves? When he finishes learning Torah? Every day before you finish for the night or you finish uh, studying what prayer you're supposed to do. I thank you, Hashem, my God, that you have established my portion with those who dwell in the study hall. And you have not established my portion with idlers. What's idlers? All your former friends. All the people that you used to hang out with your whole life, all the people I used to hang out with my whole life, all your co-workers, all the people that don't learn Torah, instead of it, they go have coffee at Starbucks for five hours. All of the people that watch TV all day, all of the people that uh, go watch sports, all the people that talk about sports, all the people that make the topic of conversation, other people's money, the lowest form of conversation. It shows that there's two cockroaches in their head, there's no brain, because if the only thing you can talk about is other people's money, that means you have no intellect whatsoever. But that's what people love to talk about. They know the salary cap of every single player in Major League Baseball since the 1980s. They know how much the contract that LeBron James signed with some shoe company. They know how much Steve Jobs made a year before he died. They know how much this guy is worth and which number he is on the Forbes 500 list. You ask him, do you know what time is Mincha? Huh? What time is Shabbat come in? Is that today Shabbat? No, it's Wednesday. But Shabbat. You know when Shabbat is? The seventh day? No. You ask him, you know any halakha? You know any? Nothing. But they know the salary caps and the statistics and who's the most, faced, uh, most famous Instagrammer and who's the most faced Twitter and who is TikTok. They know all that stuff. Oh, Rabbi, you gotta watch this video. It went viral. What is it? It's two ducks crossing the road. And do they explode? Do they start a business in the middle of the road? They start playing poker? What did they do? No, they crossed the road. It went viral. Two ducks went from one point to another. It went viral. That means 100 million people are stupid. <laughs> but this is what people do. When we finish learning Torah every single day, we are obligated to say to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, thank you, I'm not him. 
Thank you, I don't watch TikTok for a living or just for fun or just for any reason whatsoever. Thank you, I don't surf the internet all day just to see what people liked on Facebook. Thank you, I don't even know what he commented on anything because I don't even have a profile. Thank you for not letting me know what's going on in the coffee shop next door because I didn't even know there was a coffee shop next door because I'm too busy learning Torah. Thank you, HaKadosh Baruch I'm not one of those people. Even though I used to be, even though he used to be, and even though everybody used to be, thank you that today I learned Torah, I wasn't one of them. That's, one of the, that's the first step of saying thank you to Hashem. When you learn Torah. Now when a person is still in that world, still in the coffee shop world, still in the news world, still going and hanging out, it doesn't seem so bad. Like, what, what do you mean? Why are you thinking for not going to the coffee shop? Why are you thinking for not going to clubbing? You know how much fun it was in the club last night? We hung out, we drank, this guy got drunk, 4 o'clock in the morning, we're still partying. Boom, 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 pick, pock, pock. The same music from the 1990s all of a sudden became popular again. The DJ is 59 years old. When I was a kid, and we were 16, 17, 18 years old, and we saw 35-year-old people in the clubs, like, why is this old man here? Why is this old person here? He's 35. Isn't he supposed to be like a grandfather by now? As 17-year-olds, we used to make fun of them. Why is this 35-year-old guy, 40-year-old guy, with his grandmother, oh, it's his wife, whatever. Why are these two people here in this club with us 17-year-olds? Today, Rabotai Karim, 45, 50-year-old grown men and women go to clubs with the 17-year-old kids. The most bizarre thing in the world is standard. And you see this like old man. He's hanging out with all these kids that are literally his grandkids. Why? Because he's paying for everything. But the loserism, the, 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 the meaninglessness has become acceptable behavior in society. And while a person is immersed in that world, they have no idea that anything is wrong. Why? I'm having a good time. Just had three shots for tequila. I didn't even have to pay for it. The girl that's the waiter just winked at me. I think I'm going to get our number. Like, what's wrong with that? In his mind, like, what's, why, 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 why can't I watch sports? Why can't I have beers on a Tuesday afternoon? What is wrong with that? The guy that's learning Torah, he is thanking HaKadosh Baruch Hu, that I read another line in the Gemara, thank you HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And the guy that's in the club has no idea, why is he happy? Why is this guy that's reading a book happy? I'm the one drinking, trying to like numb my brain, and he's the one that's happy. Why? He's not only happy, he thanks HaKadosh Baruch Hu for being in the study hall. He thanks HaKadosh Baruch Hu and he says to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, you haven't established my, my portion with idlers. Why? Because technically our lives are the same. I rise early and they rise early. We both wake up early in the morning. I wake up early in the morning to the words of Torah. Thank you, HaKadosh Baruch Hu. In the minute that I wake up, I already know it's you. The minute I wake up, I already know I have a purpose, I have a plan. There's a reason why I'm in this world. He also wakes up in the morning. But he wakes up with idle words. What's idle words? Who won the game last night? What are we eating? What are we drinking? A few cuss words. 
Why? Because he's late to everything. We both wake up early. I wake up early, he wakes up early. I wake up to the words of Torah, he wakes up to idle words. I toil and they toil. We both work hard. You can't say that only the religious people are working hard. You can't say just the secular people are working hard. We both work hard. He toils, I toil. What's the difference though? I toil and receive reward. They toil. They don't receive reward. I toil. I learn Torah. I do mitzvot. Even the job that I have is going to make me mitzvot because I'll give some tzedakah. I'll do some good things. I'll do honest business, whatever it is. Everything that I toil in is mitzvah. He also toils. He also works hard. No mitzvot. Why? There's no purpose. No, his purpose is to make money. Okay, make money for what? So you can buy stuff. Buy stuff for what? So you can do stuff. What are you going to do with that stuff? Sins. There's no purpose. You bought a car? Fine. I bought a car. Fine. We both bought a car. Where are you going with your car? You paid the bill, I paid the bill. You may have a fancier car, I may have a fancier car. You get from one point A to point B, I get from point A to point B. We both get, at the end of the day, same level of enjoyment as far as the, the, the tool itself. What are you doing? What is the end objective to your car versus my car? My car goes to shul, my car goes to the Bet Midrash, my car goes to shurim. Your car goes to go pick up girls, boys, cats, dogs, this, that, sins, run away from the cops, run after the cops. So, so we have the same tool, but one is used for serving HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the other one is uh, serving lust. So he says, I toil and they toil. I receive reward and they don't receive reward. I run and they run. I mean, we're both chasing our tails trying to do something. We both are running. I run to the life of Olam Abba. And they run. Lebe'er Shachat. My whole purpose in life, my goal that I'm running after, the reason why I work, the reason why I read Torah, the reason why I pray, the reason why this, the reason why, is to run, to build myself a big Olam Abba, an eternal place of good. They're also running. But they're running to a place called Be'er Shachat. What's that? It's one of the chambers in Gehenom. When you read this Gemara, a few times you get to understand it, you start realizing, thank you very much for putting me in a situation where I could actually run in the right direction. Run in the direction of getting Olam getting to heaven, getting to good. But I'm not talking about the good after this world. I'm talking about the good in this world. A person wakes up without a Kadosh Baruch Hu, what's the point? A person goes on to their day without a Kadosh Baruch Hu, what's the point? What is the life of a person without a Kadosh Baruch Hu? We've all lived it at some point or another. You wake up, wash your face, shower, whatever it is that you do, eat. You eat, I eat. One does blessing, one doesn't do a blessing. The one that does a blessing, the eating becomes a mitzvah. The one that doesn't do a blessing, the eating becomes a sin they get punished for. Hashem is going to have to punish them specifically just for that act. Every single bite they get a special punishment for. He ate a bagel, he ate a bagel. 
One got a reward, special place in heaven, another room. The other one got a special place in Gehenom. Same exact act. One goes to work, the other one goes to work. One reads, the other one reads. Everybody does the same exact thing, but one earns reward, the other one earns sins. And punishment. So, then you say, okay, but maybe at least the secular person or the less religious person or the really, really modern kind of religious person that's not really religious, but they look religious, at least they're enjoying this world. And you can lie yourself all your life thinking that. Until you see what their life is like. If they don't have Torah, every single day in their life, you see what their life is. Hey, what's up? What's going on? How you doing? Good, good. I just uh, made a deal. I bought XYZ. Oh, okay. What else? Nothing. Anything else going on? No. How's the family? Good. How's this? Good. End of conversation. There's nothing else to say. Okay, next time you call them. Hey, what's going on? How you doing? How did you want to say hello? Oh, no, no, it's bad times right now. Why, family's bad? No, no, they're fine, they're fine. What's wrong? I can't unload the goods that I have. Oh, anything else going on? No, nothing. Okay, see you later. Third conversation. Hey, how you doing? Oh, good, good. I just finished uh, selling all the stuff that I had. How's everybody else? Yeah, they're still fine. Nothing has changed with them. Nothing has changed with anything. The only thing that has changed is what they're buying, selling, or they can't sell. That's it. There is no substance whatsoever to their life. And when a person that learns Torah hears this, they literally start crying, Miskin, poor person, you have no reason to exist. You're an Amazon store with legs. There's no reason for you to exist. If you existed or you don't existed, if they called you eBay or Amazon or Pikachu, no one would ever know nothing happened. There's nothing going on. You ask him what's going on? Nothing. What has changed? Nothing. How long has, how long has elapsed from the last nothing to this nothing? Years and years. I have people that I know from 20 years ago. I can continue the conversation from where we left off. Why? Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. It's the same exact person. The life is exactly the same. Sometimes the car changed. Sometimes it didn't change. Sometimes the shoes changed. Sometimes they didn't. But generally speaking, in here, in here where the neshama is, nothing. Silence. Like a cemetery. Nothing. They murder their neshama. Now you go to any Bet Midrash that has real Tamid Echachamim. Ask anybody, how are you doing? And you're going to have a conversation from here till next year about the different thoughts and ideas and experiences and appreciations and, and all types of things that just happened that day. They live, they live. Their life is life. The other one might as well be death. So when you see the life of someone that does not have a Kadosh Baruch Hu, and you literally are see, seeing a living Amazon store, nothing changed. One day he works for this company, the other day he works for that company. Change the logo, you could already fast forward five years. Oh, I haven't heard from, someone, from so-and-so in five years. Okay, just nothing has changed. Probably just the logo changed on his, uh, on his uh, Facebook page. Nothing changed. Oh, I haven't talked to her in 10 years. Yeah, probably nothing changed. Maybe the logo changed. 
the uh, relationship status changed maybe. That's it, nothing changed. The life is the same, no new ideas, no innovations, no development of any kind. And it's very sad because there's so much to live for. The, the, the mind that HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave you, the neshama that HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave you is capable of doing wonders. You can do so much that it's truly unbelievable that the, when a person wastes it purely just for commerce purposes, purely just for physical pleasures, it's literally like murdering yourself. Because yes, we all need to do some business to make a living and we all need to fulfill certain desires, eating, drinking, procreating, and so on and so forth. But if that's the only purpose a person lives for, it becomes a purposeless life that you can fast forward 20 years, hairdo will change maybe, maybe not, clothes will change maybe, maybe not, for sure they're going to get fatter because we all do. Other than that, nothing. You can continue the conversation that you stopped 20 years ago, as if nothing has changed, because nothing has. So when a person that learns Torah and makes an effort to learn Torah every single day, and it doesn't need to be 20 hours a day or 15 hours a day or something that is you know, not feasible in the mind of a person when they first start, it could literally be an hour or two a day. But an hour or two of serious learning that is actually going to change their life. A person that learns in that fashion turns the entire day, the entire 24 hours revolves around that one or two hours that they learn. That whole 24 hours exists just for that one or two hours. Why? Because that's when I'm alive. That's when I'm alive. Now, I can tell you all of this, but I can't make you feel any of it. Doesn't matter how many words I use, I can talk for another thousand hours. I can never make you feel it. I can never make you feel what it feels like to learn for several hours straight. I can never make you feel what it feels like to learn for several hours straight, multiple days in a row. And I can never make you feel like what it feels like to learn every single day for several months in a row and apply those changes to their, your life. In fact, the greatest pleasure that a person could ever have, whether it be drugs or, or any other physical desire, if you combine all of them, would not be equivalent to even a single minute of the feeling that a person gets after they start applying Torah to their life, but not initially, after it becomes a permanent fixture in their life. Now, when you tell this to an average person that has no concept, it's not going to help them. So if you're going to try to change yourself with this, it may work sometimes, it may not work sometimes. If you're going to try to convince your old friends that are trying to bring you back to the back in the day, to being a criminal again, to being a gangster again, and it doesn't need to be gangster against the police, it could just be a gangster against God, usually it's not going to work. Why? I need to see it. Thank you very much for speaking for an hour. I need to see any of it. I can't see any of this. I could, you know, maybe funny a little bit, but I can't see any of it. But you know what everybody can see? You know what everybody can feel? Suffering. That's something that is universal in every language. Everyone is afraid of suffering. Everyone has their life revolved around the fear of suffering in one form or another. They go into relationships because they suffer from loneliness or they're afraid to suffer from loneliness. 
They make certain business transactions because they're either suffering from poverty or they're afraid to suffer from poverty. They do all types of things because they're afraid to, that they're going to be missing in action. And suffering, whether it exists or it's simply in the person's mind, is the primary driving force for why people make their decisions in life. Hence the reason why I can speak out of my bedroom, out of my office, give a lecture for two hours and help thousands of people do tshuva. Other people can do the same exact thing in a hall with 5,000 people for 20 years straight. And not a single person will change. Because one person is telling people what they can connect to, the other person is just pacifying them. Everyone is afraid to suffer. But what happened is, Rabbutai, the Yetzirah is so clever, he's so smart, he convinced everyone, as I said earlier, that the suffering is minute. The suffering is limited. What? Gehenna? No, I don't think he understood it. It's only a Midrash. It's only a Gemara. And you know, there are other opinions. And the Yetzirah tried to make sure that everybody just doesn't even think about the 13 principles of faith, of how punishment is actually something you're obligated to think about every single day. And in fact, when you actually understand the words you're saying in prayer, in the morning, in the afternoon, at night, what you read in every parasha, what you read in every sidu, what you read in every holiday, what is literally across all spectrums of our holy Torah, you're constantly reminded of the consequences. In the morning, in the morning shachrit, for anyone that's going to attend synagogue in the morning, you may have not noticed it, but you will notice it tomorrow. Where in the morning prayer it says, Az panim The arrogant, they go to genom. Why? Because if they're arrogant, that means they're not going to change. If they're not going to change, certainly they're not going to do Hashem's will. Yeah, but if he's still coming to shul, is not good enough? No. If he's coming to shul and still arrogant, he's actually much worse off than the guy who didn't come to shul. Because at least before he came to shul, there was hope that if he came to shul and came to the shul and did tshuva, he would change. If he's going to shul and he's still arrogant, we have a very serious problem. And that's good morning. Good morning. Already in the morning, you just woke up, you still have a little cobwebs on your eyes. And Chachamim said, already you have to know, Genom is right next to you. And it mentions it countless times in the prayer. But yet, anytime we've mentioned it in Shiurim, anytime somebody has asked their local rabbi, unless that local rabbi was a serious Talmud Chacham, that had Yirat Shemaim, they would do whatever they could to cool the people off. Because when a person has Yirat Shemaim, that means that instead of being on autopilot, working for the Yetzirah, making sins, when a person has Yirat Shemaim, when a person has fear of the Almighty, they go on autopilot of doing what Hashem says. One of my dear students told me that one of the ways that he tries to steal time from the Yetzirah so he can learn more Torah, he's a very big matmid, works a full-time career, does Kiruv, and he learns seven to nine hours a day. I have some people that I know that if they learn two hours a day, it would already be a miracle. This guy learns seven to nine hours a day with a full-time career, works for two companies, and does Kiruv. Something unbelievable. One of the ways that he does it is he steals times from the Yetzirah wherever he can. 
And so I show me an example. He said, I bought a car. It's called a Tesla. I said, okay, Tesla studies for you. He goes, no, no, it drives for me. So what do you mean drives for you? He says, he drives for you. You just go into the car and it drives wherever you want it to go. You just put it in the computer and it drives. So I said, what do you do when it drives? He goes, I read, I learned Torah. Genius. Tesla exists just for this guy. Literally, you have a trillion dollar company. However much it's worth today, it's just for this guy. There is no other reason for this company to exist. What, do you think a Kadosh Baruch Hu really cares if people drive or don't drive? If people are going to, you know, fill up their gas from something that he created from, from his own nature? Or they're going to fill up from a different part of his nature? Like he isn't. Do you think a Kadosh Baruch Hu cares about this or this? But to give a Jew an opportunity to learn for an extra 40 minutes a day because he doesn't have to turn the wheel, that's worth it. It's worth it for a, per, for, for a Kadosh Baruch Hu to create a trillion dollar company just for this. What's the source? The Rambam. The Rambam brings it, he says that a Kadosh Baruch Hu loves his children so much that he will give some sheikh, some Arab, endless amount of money and a crazy desire to build a tower in the middle of the desert for no reason whatsoever, just because a few hundred years later, some righteous Jew is going to walk by, he's going to be hot, so he needs the sh- shadow, he needs uh, you know, something to cool off. Oh, big tower over there, let me just stand over there for an hour and then leave. The building can exist for 400 years just for that Jew to be there for an hour. That's how much a Kadosh Baruch Hu values the righteous people, the righteous Jews. So it's not a chidush that Tesla exists for this guy. It's not a chidush. And surely I'm hoping, and I assume, that there's other people that are smart like this. Not because of this company, but because they know they need to fight the Yetzirah for time. If you think that you're going to have free time to learn, you haven't met the Yetzirah yet. If the Yetzirah is sending you rabbis to fool you, sending you friends to fool you, sending you all types of people to fool you, surely he's going to send you opportunities to take your time. The Yetzirah is even going to be willing to give you millions of dollars, make you as rich as you want to be, just so you don't learn Torah. Because when a person finishes their life in this world, they can't take the money with them. So the Yetzirah gets it back anyway. The mitzvot, they can't take with them. And when a person doesn't learn Torah, they have no mitzvot. So now, while everybody is saying that you don't have to worry so much about the consequences of things, I wanted to see what are some of the examples that we have in the Torah that's quite the opposite. The same Gemara that I mentioned continues. And it has a story, a famous story, some of you at least have surely heard it before, but it's worth to hear it again. When Abban Yochanan ben Zakai became ill, deathly ill, he was on his deathbed, his students entered to visit him, and when they saw him, he began to cry. And his students said to the rabbi, Ner Yisrael, light of Israel, rightmost pillar, mighty hammer, why do you cry? Meaning, you're the Gdolado, you're the Tzaddik, you're Kodesh Kodeshim. The entire Torah in the world exists because of Abban Yochan ben Zakai. We would have lost the Torah if it wasn't for him. Why are you crying? Can't say I'm crying because I'm afraid to die because, uh, what, what are you crying? You're going to heaven, right? That's what the student assumes. But the old man's crying, crying like a baby. Why are you crying, Kvodalav? He says to them... He knows he's going to die. 
He's not delusional. And he says to them, If they were leading me to a judgment before a king of flesh and blood, who's here today and in the grave tomorrow, who if he becomes angry with me, his anger is not an everlasting anger. And if he imprisons me, his imprisonment is not forever. And if he puts me to death, his death is not for everlasting death. And I'm able to even appease them with words. I'm able to bribe him with money. Even though that would be the case, I'd still cry. But now that they're leading me before the king of kings, who reigns over all kings, the Holy One blessed is he, who lives and endures forever and ever. Where if he becomes angry with me, his anger is an everlasting anger. And if he imprisons me, his imprisonment is an everlasting imprisonment. And if he puts me to death, his death is an everlasting death. And I'm unable to appease him with words, nor am I able to bribe him with money. And not only that, but there lies before me two paths. One of them to Ganeden, and the other one to Gehenom. And I don't know which one they're going to lead me to. Shouldn't I cry about that? This Rabotai Karim is the Moshe Rabbeinu of his generation. He is crying because he says to us, simple, if you took any major leader in the world that has the power to kill, and he told me this guy is showing up to your house tomorrow, and I know that if this guy doesn't like me, I'm dead. If I can't, if, if I can't appease him, I'm dead. But even then, I'll be scared for that. But not scared, absolutely scared, but scared. Why? Because whatever punishment he gives me is temporary. But then you tell me, no, no, no. You're going to meet the king of kings. You can't bribe him. You can't negotiate with him. If he punishes you, it's permanent punishment. If he's angry with you, it's, it's permanent anger. The magnitude is unlimited, infinite. There is no limit whatsoever. And here, there's two options, there's two consequences, not one. With the king of flesh and blood, consequence is either he doesn't like me and I get punished, or nothing. I go on my way, he goes back to Bangladesh, he goes back to Iran, he goes back to wherever he goes to. And I go back to my life like nothing happened. That's the king of flesh and blood. But this king of kings, no, it's not only that the punishment could be severe, eternal, horrible, atrocious, but also I lose out on eternity of good that I could have gotten. Meaning that not only does a person that's a sinner get punished and he goes to the horrible place and the Holocaust times a million and all that stuff. No, but he also gets to see all the stuff that he could have had. Had he just made a smaller difference in his life. Just one minor change. Instead of going to the pub, go to the Bet Midrash. Instead of going to hang out with a bunch of drunks, go hang out with a bunch of religious Jews. Instead of going out with this girl, go marry that girl. Why? She's not Jewish. She's Jewish. We're not telling you be celibate, be alone, be a monk. We're not telling you go to some cave and live off of cherubs like Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. I'm not telling you, you can't do it. Do, but do it in a kosher way.
Work, but work in a kosher way. So not only is he scared, wait, not only I get punishment, but I also lose out because I see what I could have gotten. And you don't want me to cry. So now Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakai, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakai is scared. But the local rabbis are sometimes not scared, the local religious people are sometimes not scared, an entire generation of secular people is not scared. How come? Can, you, can anybody give a legitimate reason why they're not scared? I think it's lack of knowledge or lack of belief. So maybe they don't know Rabban Yochanan ben Zakai. Does anybody here not know who Moshe Rabbeinu is? Raise your hand. Everybody knows Moshe Rabbeinu. Moses, everybody knows Moses, right? Everybody knows Moshe Rabbeinu? Okay, so surely the people that don't believe in genom and punishment and so on, also, they know who Moshe Rabbeinu is. Now, I don't have to justify Moshe Rabbeinu being righteous. I don't have to qualify him. Everyone knows, even the goyim, even the secular, even the anti-God people know who Moshe Rabbeinu is. And even they agree that Moshe Rabbeinu is amazing. So now you tell me this. The Midrash in this week's Parashat Masay says the following. There's a verse in the parasha where HaKadosh Baruch Hu says to Moshe Rabbeinu, Command the children of Israel and say to them, when you come to the land of Canaan, this is the land that I shall fall, that, that I shall fall to you as an inheritance. I mean, this is the land I'm going to give you. Midrash says, why is the Kadosh Baruch Hu adding the word this? Zot. Oh, we learned from here something called the Gzirah Shava. That we have a certain superfluous word here. That means this word is used somewhere else. We have something to learn from this word. So Midrash says here that the first thing we learn, this teaches us that the Holy One, blessed is He, when He says this, that means that He's showing Moshe Rabbeinu what He's talking about. Not just telling Him. He says, this is the land. That means He's showing Him the land. Like He sees everything. But also He's showing Him Everything that was and everything that would be. Meaning all of what happened until now in the past from the creation of the world. And everything that's going to happen until Mashiach comes. Until the end of the world. That's what he's showing Moshe Rabbeinu in this parasha. He shows them that she, uh, uh, Samson would rise from Dan, from the, from the tribe of Dan. And Barak, the, the son of Avinom, will rise from Naphtali. And similarly he shows them that each generation and its... Dorshav, uh, its uh, expositors, its people that teach during that generation, each generation and its judges, each generation has its leaders, each generation has its sinners, each generation has its righteous people. So he shows them all of the righteous people that are ever going to live, all the wicked people that are ever going to live, the crimes, the, the, the good things, he shows them everything. But the Midrash says, but also we learn that this word zot, this, is also used somewhere else. Where it says, this is the land, Hashem says to Moshe Rabbeinu, this is the land that I swore to Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, saying, I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your own eyes. Chachamim says, what's it? See it. What does it mean, see it? Why don't you say, see the land? Why it? No, see it. Doesn't mean the land. This teaches us, the Midrash says, that a Kadosh Baruch Hu shows Moshe Rabbeinu Genom. 
That's it. Mishosem Gehenom. Melamed Sher'au Gehenom. Amar Moshe, Mino Dinbo. Moshe says to HaKadosh Baruch after he sees this, who's punished in this place? Amar lo HaRashaim VaHaPoshaim Bi. HaKadosh Baruch says to Moshe, the wicked ones, the ones that rebel against me. And they will go out and see, as it says in the, uh, in, uh, the prophet Isaiah, the last verse, chapter 66, verse 24, where it says, And they will go out and see the corpses of the men who rebelled against me, for their decay will not cease and their fire will not be extinguished. And they will lie in disgrace before all of mankind. So this is one of the verses that's a source from the Torah. It says that there is a form of punishment that is forever. Moshe Rabbeinu sees Gehenom, and the Midrash says Moshe Rabbeinu began to become petrified of Gehenom, became afraid of Gehenom. I'm not going to tell you what's there. I've already done that in different shulim. But the point here is, Moshe Rabbeinu is scared of Gehenom. Why is Moshe Rabbeinu scared of Gehenom? Does anybody here think that Moshe Rabbeinu needs to go to Gehenom? No, right? You don't have to be a genius to know that. But Moshe Rabbeinu is scared of Gehenom, and he's scared until HaKadosh Baruch Hu calms him down and says, I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not cross over to it. You're not going to go in there, don't worry. Meaning that Moshe Rabbeinu is scared enough that he thinks he's going to go there. Even though he knows that he's not a bad person, but he doesn't know to what to which extent. Maybe he's going to punish me that I didn't sanctify his name. Maybe it's not enough that he's not going to let me into an Eretz Yisrael. Maybe I still have to suffer on the way to heaven. I have to get burned a little bit. He's scared even of being there for a single second because he sees what it is. It's no longer a teachings. It's a reality. When someone says, no, don't do this or else you will lose money. Okay, you may listen. You may not listen. Why? Because... So far, it's theoretical. Don't do this or else you can get sick. You may listen, you may not listen. Why? Because it's theoretical. But if he says, hey, don't do it. You see him, he died? That's going to happen to you if you do it. No more questions. I'm never going to do it. Take it back. I don't want it. Go. Why? Because you're seeing. It's real. Something happened. Moshe Rabbeinu sees Gehenom. He's scared to death. Why is Moshe Rabbeinu scared to death? But the average person walking around today, you ask him, are you scared of Gehenom? What is that? Why should I be scared? Average lecture online makes it sound like a good place. So you see that there's a lot of confusion. And one of the main things that the Yetzirah has done is convince people that it either doesn't exist or it's limited or and so on. Now the Efet Torah says... That HaKadosh Baruch Hu shows Moshe Rabbeinu all of the criminals in every generation and also all of the judges. Why does it say criminals, judges? Why does it specify? It says because sometimes the judge is the criminal. And sometimes the entire generation is full of criminals that are sometimes leaders. Now, it also says that HaKadosh Baruch Hu matches the speakers, the rabbis, the leaders, the judges with every generation. To remind us that whatever we have is what we asked for, is what we deserve. So we can't complain, oh, this is a weak generation, therefore I'm allowed to do, no. What we have is what we asked for. The key is to know that this little bit of information is enough for us to ask if it's in the Midrashim. And it's also in the Gemarot. 
What's the only reason why people would say that Gehenom is not mentioned? And they're not talking about it. He's going to say, no, it's not our way. It's not our way to teach about punishment. It's not our way to teach about consequences. We want to teach you to love God and be happy. See some, well, do you teach Alacha? Yes. You teach Shulchan Aruch? Yes. Do you disagree with Shulchan Aruch? Not allowed to be. Why? Because if you're an Orthodox Jew, Shulchan Aruch is, that's it. It's the end all be all. There's a few customs different between Ashkenazim, Sfaradim, but the basic foundation is exactly the same. Sometimes somebody would tell me, listen, we Ashkenazim, we don't learn about consequences. It's more of a Sephardi thing. What I'm going to do now is solve the last equation to eliminate any doubt left for anybody to justify not speaking about consequences because... We're not going to go into the details of the consequences, but just give you some statistics. Where is Genom in Alacha? Not Midrashim, not Gmarot. We did that already. Thousands of, 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 uh, of minutes and hours have been spent in order to get that point across. The question is, is there a difference between a Midrash and Alacha, a Gemara and Alacha? Yes, a world of difference. Why? You can debate with the Midrash. You can hear what they're saying, agree or disagree with certain things. Even though they all have value, even though they all have significance. There's no obligation to, to follow every single Midrash, even especially since some of them contradict each other or look like they do. Same thing with Gemarot. There's different layers of, that you extrapolate from the Gemara, understandings and so on. But once something is Alacha, that's it. That's like Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, Moshe Rabbeinu, the end. There is no further discussion. How much does the Torah mention the subject of Gehenom and consequence? Is it just some strange thing that is in my mind and I'm the only one that likes to talk about it? Like I have some fixed fixation about it? Or is this the way of the Masoret of Am Yisrael? That we actually have to be like the rest of society and not only think of consequences of missing out, of doing wrong in business, missing out, doing wrong in marriage, missing out, doing wrong in relationships, but also missing out, doing wrong in our purpose of life. We're all living based on fear everywhere else in our life. As I said, fear of loneliness, fear of poverty, fear of this, fear of that, fear of sickness, and so on and so forth. For the last two years, people walking around with this mask on their face. Everyone said, oh, I'm afraid of being sick. Well, you should be more afraid of saying Lashon Hara because that's the reason why HaKadosh Baruch Hu put a mask on everybody's face. Once for the first time in two years, they shut their mouth. The only, thing that, the only other thing that has that in creation is the dogs. They put a muzzle on them. People got a muzzle for two years. At least they speak less Lashon Hara. At least theoretically that was the idea. It didn't work so good. But the point is, that all joking aside, is that for two years, people showed that they're afraid. They're afraid of getting sick. Then they were afraid of the medicine. Then they were afraid of some, some new creation that people made in their mind. Now there's like a whole craziness in the world of people that are anti the system, anti this, anti that. Fine, we're not going to go into that debate. Clearly everyone knows that there is a certain amount of fear that is necessary for us to exist. So is that also in Alakha, which is the rule book that tells us yes or no?
No debates, no this different opinions, yes or no? In the Talmud Bavli, the word Genom appears no less than 133 times. Talmud Bavli is the foundation of our oral Torah. But that's just the word Genom, not the subject of Genom. Because Genom has multiple names. There's no less than seven names of Genom. There's Sheol, there's Avadon, Emek um, uh, and so on. So just the word Genom appears in the Talmud Bavli 133 times. In the Yerushalmi, 15 times. The two Bet Yosef, 13 times. The Bet Yosef, 14 times. In Sifre Chasidut, no less than a thousand times. Ravavadiyaz Yebiyah Omer, 76 times. Meaning that putting Midrashim, Agadot, and so on aside, the Allahic foundation of Judaism discusses Genom much more often than they discuss pretty much anything else. With the exception of maybe Shabbat. But even Shabbat, this constantly mentions the consequences of not following. Now, the Rambam in Ilchot Yesodei Torah, chapter 5, Alakha number 4, surprises a lot of people that think that the Rambam perhaps did not follow the teachings of our Masoret about Genom and so on and so forth. And he says the following. If there, was a, if there was a situation where a person was under the uh, uh, risk of losing his life because of a wicked king, but he had an opportunity to flee, to run away, but he doesn't do so. He knows that there's a horrible king that's forcing people to go become idol worshippers, and he can run away. And he chooses not to. The Rambam says, one who could escape and flee from under the power of a wicked king and fails to do so is like a dog who returns to lick his vomit. He is considered as one who worships a false god willingly. He will be prevented from reaching the world to come and he will descend to the lowest levels of Genom. This is a lacha, this is not a midrash. Where the Rambam says outright, you have an opportunity to avoid a sin. The Torah obligates us to avoid certain sins under all costs. If somebody tells you, either die or violate Shabbat, you have to violate Shabbat. But if they tell you die or worship a foreign god, you have to die. But if they tell you, listen... Either violate Shabbat or give me all of your money. You have to give all the money. All of your money. You have a billion dollars. You have to give just to, just to avoid violating a single sin in the Torah. Any sin. Somebody says, either sin or give me a hundred billion dollars that you have in the bank. You have to give the hundred billion dollars. To avoid a sin of, you're not allowed to do certain things. Fire on Shabbat and so on and so forth. Eat pig, whatever. Now, if you have an opportunity to avoid making that sin, you can run away. But you choose not to. Either because you're afraid, or whatever other reason there is. The Rambam says not only is that itself turned into a sin, but it's the worst possible thing that a person can do. It's the equivalent of idol worship. 
And it brings him to the lowest level of Gehenom. Meaning not only does the Rambam mention Gehenom in Alacha, but he even specifies that there is levels in Gehenom. It's not just like one size fits all. The Rambam in Ilchot Sanedrin. In chapter 23, Alakha number 8. Talks about the dinim, how a dayan, a judge, a Jewish judge, has to behave when he's about to make a judgment. Reuven and Shimon are in a case against each other. Reuven thinks that Shimon owes him money. Shimon thinks Reuven is crazy. The judge has to decide who's right and who's wrong. The Rambam says, and this is something that comes from the Gemara Masechet Sanhedrin, page 7a, it also comes from uh, uh, many other places that it's quoted. But the Rambam says that a judge should always see himself as if the sword is drawn on his neck and Gehenom is open before him. He should know who he's judging before whom he's judging and who will ultimately exact retribution from him if he deviates from the path of truth. Meaning that the judge is supposed to think of Genom while he's actually doing his job. That if he judges the wrong way, he's going to get punished. Severely. How is this in real life? One of the great Sadiqim of the previous generation from the Bukhatsira family, he got murdered by one of his uh, crazy Talmidim. And uh, one day, Rabbi Lazar Bukhatsira came to Rabbi Vadya. Allah Shalom. And he says to Rabbi Vadya, tell me the secret. How is it that every one of your sons became a Talmid Chacham that teaches Torah? He says, I prayed. He said, Kvod Arav, come on. We all prayed. All the rabbis prayed. Not everybody has. Every son is a Talmud Chacham. Okay, maybe one, maybe two, maybe five. But every single one of them is a manhig, is a leader, is, is, is a mamash. Something special? Every one of them? Nah, something else. Tell me the secret. So after pressuring Rabbi Vadya, Rabbi Vadya tells him this. He says, you know, I was a Dayan in the Bedin for a long time. Decades. Not once in all of my life did I ever look at a woman. So Rabbi Elazar Bukhatsira says, How? Women come, divorce. Women come, lawsuits. How do you not look at them? You have to look at them. Because no, no. I put my head down. Doing what? Drawing. What do you mean drawing? You have to have your focus. Because I'm focused. They think that I'm writing down everything they're saying. Me, I'm drawing. Because I can't learn. Because I'm obligated to have full focus on what they're saying. So I can't learn and have my mind somewhere else. So I'm doing something else that doesn't occupy my mind. But also the same token, I'm never looking at them. Now one of the customs in the... Ovadia family, the, 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 the Rav Ovadia's family, is that every day Rav Ovadia would come home with one of his drawings. He's a an artist. 
He asked the Rabbanit, Rabbanit, who is, be, who is the best boy today, best girl today? Who is the be, best kid today? Oh, uh, David was. Okay, David gets Abba's drawing. And the kids would celebrate who got the drawing that day. Who got, they had no clue. Why, when does Abba have time to draw? No one realized until many years later that he's drawing at the Bedin in order to avoid looking at a woman. One time there was a criminal that came to the Bedin and fleed the Bedin, ran away from the police. And oh, this is like maybe 70 years ago. So in those days, there's no cameras and all that stuff that you have today. It's standard. And the police don't know how to find this person because how do they identify him? There's no pictures. So nobody says, I have a picture. Oh, you do? Yeah, yeah, I have a picture. I have a uh, drawing of him. What do you mean you have a drawing of him? I drew him. When did you have time to draw him? He goes, don't worry, I have time. Here, here's a drawing of him. He gives him the drawing, identical to the guy. They found the guy. They found the criminal because of this drawing. Now, why did he draw it? Was he, did, did he have a uh, love for drawing? No. It's for the sake of protecting his eyes. When a person protects their eyes, they're protecting their neshama. When a person protects their neshama, there's an endless amount of rewards for it. So now you have the Chachamim telling us that when a person is a Dayan, they not only have to worry about paskening the right way, but also how the surroundings are going to affect them. How do they do that? By constantly thinking about the consequence of every single thing they're going to do. Now, in the Shulchan Aruch, we also have mentions of consequences. Interestingly enough, unlike what common belief is today, the most common mention of the word Genom is not by Rabbi Yosef Kahl, the Sephardic Posek, but rather by Arab Iserlis, the, the Ashkenazi Posek. Now the two mentions Genom 13 times. In Ilchot Filin, he mentions it twice where he says that the yud, that you have tefillin, has, has to be on a tefillin, has to be drawn in a certain way, where there is a, a tip, a pointy tip on top, and a pointy tip on the bottom. If your tefillin do not have a pointy tip, you're not following one of the alachot. That's very important. Why is it important? Did you even notice that it's, that it, that it's pointy? No. But the tool says it's extremely important for it to be. Why? Because it's pointy on the bottom to remind people that if they sin, they don't put on tefillin, they're going to go to Genom. This is where the Neshamot go. When they don't put on tefillin, when they don't follow Torah, they don't follow mitzvot, the Yud is pointy on the bottom to remind people that the Neshamot is going to go to Genom. That's the Al-Chai, the tool says. Paskins. What about on top? If they're righteous, if they're righteous, but they still made some sins, just know it's pointy on top to remind you that even if you went to Gainom for something else, eventually you're going to come out because you put on tefillin. <coughs> That's why the Yud is drawn that way. And this is mentioned a couple of times in the tool. And he mentions it in many other places of why there is a need to know Gainom according to Allah. In Ilchot Kriyat Shema, in Siman 62 in the tool. He says that when a person has kavana, when they say kriyat shema, they're relieving themselves for a certain amount of time that they would be supposed to be in genom. Again, this is not a midrash, this is not a story, it's not an agada, it's not a fairy tale. This is a law in the Torah. 
Now the Rama in the Shulchan Aruch mentions Genom, like I said before, much more than Rabbi Yosef Karo. In Orach Haim, we have it a couple of times in Ilchot Shabbat. In Siman 291, it's certainly worth anyone that has Shulchan Aruch to look into it. And you see something interesting when it comes to Suda Shlishit. Something that the average person doesn't even know exists. There's a lot about Suda Shlishit, when, how, who, what, where, all that stuff. But in uh, Siman uh, uh, 291, in uh, the se- second section, the Rama says that Yeshomrim. Says there are some chachamim that say that in the time of mincha that's right next to arvit, not mincha in the afternoon, that's like right next to the night where most people pray. They pray mincha and uh, during the week, and then right after that it's arvit. So usually in in a uh, on Shabbat you pray mincha, then arvit. But he says during that time where it's not quite Arvit, and you can still technically pray Mincha, during that time, don't drink water. Why? He says because that's the time that the Neshamot that are in Genom right now, they're punished, family members, cousins, whoever that you know is there. But they kept Shabbat. So they're not in Genom on Shabbat. But now, at the end of Shabbat, they're going back to Gehenom. On the way to Gehenom, they give them some water. If you drink the physical water here, it takes away from the spiritual water they're supposed to get. So you cause them suffering. Don't drink water during this window of time. That's it. That's the halacha. If that's not bad enough, in the next siman, rest tzadikhei, or next uh, 295, the Ramah mentions even more. He says, one of the things that people are bothered by the most is when the Chazan extends the prayer. He goes on, and he starts singing, and this, and he want, everybody wants to go home already. But he wants to go on. And usually we try to minimize the length of prayers. So there's not what's called Torah Tzibu. But the Ramah says here, that all of a sudden on the Arvit of, uh, of Shabbat, Motse Shabbat, all of a sudden we do Noam and we take our time during the week. Arvit, you're lucky if it's five minutes. Motse Shabbat, 15, 20 minutes, they add some songs, Noam, Vi this. Why? Go home. You've been at shul all day already. Why? We intentionally add this. Shaz chozrim reshaim legenom. Why? Because we want to We want to delay all of the wicked that are supposed to go back to genom. They go back to genom as soon as Shabbat is over. So why are you making Shabbat over quickly? Let it take a little extra time. Maybe it's your cousin. Maybe it's your aunt. Maybe it's your uncle. Maybe it's this. So you that uh, are in a hurry to finish the prayers, what do you, if you were there in their shoes, you would want to go back to uh, Motzei Shabbat? No. 
So we extend the prayers a little bit. Why? Mercy to those wicked people that are in Gainom. This is just Orachayim. Then you have Yoredea. Yoredea and Ilchot Avelut. Ilchot Avelut. It's at the end, yeah. It says in a uh, Siman 376, Shin Ein Vav, in Seif Dalit, the Ramah again brings that Al Ken Nagul Omar Alav Aem Kadish. Oh, so this is when a, uh, a person. Motzei Shabbat, or uh, during the time of uh, the first year, person, uh, his parents passed away. Usually he wants to be Chazan. When you give a position to be Chazan on Motzei Shabbat, it's a big chesed. To give a person that his parents died that year, it's a big chesed to give him to, give him, uh, to be Chazan on Motzei Shabbat. Why? The Ramah says, because that's the time where the Neshamot go back to Gehenom. But, because he's Chazan... He relieves his parents from Gainom for that day. So how grateful are our parents that their son, just because he's a chazan, he's a chazan, he is relieving them from some suffering in Gainom. Meaning that when, when you see how often the Chachamim mentioned this, it wasn't some theoretical knowledge of, oh, what could happen if you're bad, or if this, this is Standard Judaism. Standard Judaism to the point where when a person does not understand this, they can easily justify every single crime under the sun. Now in Choshen Mishpat, the third out of four sections of the Shulchan Aruch, we also have in Ilchot Dayanim, you have it's in a uh, beginning. I remember. Ken. The Chachamim mentioned the same exact thing that we had in the Gemara, which is that a Dayan. When he's judging a case, has to always consider that there is genom opened from under him. And that there's a sword right next to his brit. So Chamim asked, why is sword right next to his brit? So you should know, the sword is if he judges against halakha, if he judges because it's convenient for him, if he judges because it's profitable for him, and not because it's the truth, the sword will cause him damage immediately. In the most scary place that he have. Meaning it's a sword next to your bleed. Everybody gets the point of what that means. That's in this world. The genom being opened is also that he's not, the, the, the suffering won't be enough just in this world. Meaning that for a person to be, to go work really, really hard, to become a Dayan, just to be corrupt, is the craziest and dumbest thing on planet Earth. But unfortunately it does exist. It does exist. 
So the Chachamim wanted to make, make sure that everybody understands that there is a consequence for doing so. Now what is the conclusion of all of this? The conclusion is this, Rabotai. Rabbi Ephraim says that a person should never be scared of speaking about Genom or hearing about Genom, but rather the opposite. They should be scared of somebody who doesn't speak about it. They should be scared about somebody that refuses to listen to it. What is it like if you wanted to become a doctor? And you went to school and you learned biology and chemistry and, and, and all types of other things. And then they told you, okay, listen, you have to take this uh, course. And this course is going to be the most critical step of your learning. But we have two options. We have one professor on this side of the building and another professor on that side of the building. Choose whichever one you want. So you go, naturally, if you're a smart person, you say, okay, what's the difference between the professors? So you ask some people that went to that class, you know what's the difference between two professors? Yeah, yeah, huge difference. What's the difference? The guy on this side, he's the funniest guy in the world. He's so funny, I mean, you're not gonna, you're, you're not gonna stop laughing the whole class. You're gonna laugh so much, he's hysterical, he's really charismatic. He brings all types of stuff and like theatrics to the, to the class. We really have a good time. Once in a while he brings beer. We're having a good time. W what about medicine? Nah. Let's talk about medicine. What about the other guy? Oh, the other guy? He's boring. He's so boring. And now that sometimes, not just boring, he's scary too. Tells you about all types of stuff. What, what, what is he, what stuff, what stuff? Tells you all the consequences of what if a doctor fails, he can kill people, the consequences of not putting the right prescription or the right medicine or not cutting appropriately or not numbing appropriately. I mean, the guy's just miserable. I don't know, he always talks about negative things. Now, a wise person, which professor does he go to? If he wants to graduate as a clown, he wants to graduate as a comedian, he goes to the first one, to the funny guy. But if he wants to be a doctor, he has to go to the other one. Why? Because the other one's going to teach him the consequences so he could avoid them. When a person runs away from learning about the consequences of their actions, that means that they have simply accepted the fact that they are incapable of changing. But the truth is, is that Every one of us knows that we could all change. We just need enough inspiration, enough motivation. If we're going to rely on our past to motivate us, it can't motivate us forever. Because the past, at some point you pass it, and staying close to it is going to bring you back to it. The only thing that's going to get us forward is by getting us to learn enough Torah that we realize that if we don't continue to learn, if we don't continue to grow, we're simply going to fall in and be prey to our own foolishness. And a person needs to know that learning about the consequences is simply a, a, a necessity, a necessity in all aspects of life. Once a person applies these types of teachings to their, to, to their life, to their, to their Torah, then they're able to change. To finalize everything, we have to learn from the people that 
in so many words, beat the system in such a fashion that we remember their name until this day, that we aspire to be like them, the people that, regardless of how they started, we all know they had a good finish. One of the great Musar masters was the Saba Minovarduk. He was a Talmud of Rabbi Yisrael Misalant. But you should be surprised that the Sabamin of Aldok, unlike today where, you know, someone that wants to be a student of somebody, they have to literally dedicate years and years of their life to be glued to the rabbi, to listen to everything that the rabbi said. The Sabamin of Aldok was already a Talmud Chacham. He learned 13 shiurim from Rabbi Yisrael Misalant in order to transform his entire life. Now, the Sabamin of Aldok, he said that life is like a deer that's running away. Running away from things that are chasing him, things that are trying to destroy him. Naturally, that deer is going to want to run as deep into the woods as he possibly can. We want to run into as deep into all types of things in our life. And if you have a good goal, you want to go as far into that good goal as you possibly can. But the Sabbath of Elduk says that there's one thing that gets in the way of the deer. What? The antlers. Those beautiful antlers, those really, really beautiful antlers that make the deer feel like he's bigger, feel like he's more beautiful, feel like he's better than everybody else, they're getting in the way. Why? Because naturally, they're going to get stuck in the trees and the bushes and slow him down. He can't go everywhere, he can't go as fast as he wants, because the antlers are in the way. The Sabamin Navalduk says the antlers are the bad character traits of a person. If a person wants to get to where they need to get to, those bad character traits will always get in the way. That arrogance, that lust, that, that certain behavior, that stinginess, whatever it is, those things will always get in the way. If you want to get to where you want to be, you have to get rid of the antlers. Yeah, but the antlers, you know, my friends, my, everybody likes them, they say I'm beautiful because of it. Yeah, yeah, it's an illusion. It's all an illusion. If you want to get to where you want to be, you have to get rid of the illusion. Sometimes that illusion is being reminded to you by your friends or family or associates or certain uh, hobbies that a person has. You have to get rid of that stuff. One of the things that is a driving force to get rid of bad things is consequence. Consequence of losing everything. And the Sabamin Navaduk says that there's two ways to refine your midot. One is by simply being determined, and two by examining all your bad stuff. I believe that the combination of both is more relevant to most people. Because usually when people are very, very determined, they can turn to be very, very fanatic, to the point where they destroy everything around them. And when people only look at their flaws, they can become very, very depressed. So unless you have a teacher that's going to teach you on a regular basis how to apply, when to apply, what's too much, what's too little, and you have to be very honest with this teacher that knows what he's doing, to do one or the other is going to be too difficult for most people. So that's why it requires for a person to be both determined and to analyze, to reflect of where they stand at all times. 
Now, of course, we could all look at the great tzaddikim, the Sabah Minavagdo, the Chafetz Chaim, and all the tzaddikim in the world. But that in itself is not going to be enough. When someone came to Navadok, he asked the Rabbanit, the Rebetzin was uh, the Tzadmin Navadok's daughter. And he asked her about the yeshiva, she said, you came from Radin, from the yeshiva of the Chafetz Chaim. She said, yeah. She told him, do you know what's the difference between Radin and Navadok? And he said, no. She said, in Radin, you see the Chafetz Chaim, the Kohen Gadol, the Tzadik. It gives you something to aspire to, to, to be something. Navardok reminds you of who you are now. And you need to know who you are now in order to beat the Yetzirah. You need to know who you are now. Who you are now is not necessarily who you were before you did Shuvah, before you converted, before you got on the right path. So don't let those people that want you to be there still stay in your life to bring you back there. At the same token, don't be delusional and think that who you are now is simply enough. Because if it was, you'd be like Chanoch, and a Kadosh Baruch Hu would turn you into an angel. If you're still here, there's more work to do. Now we can't focus on our past, we can't go back to our past, but at the same token, we can't stay where we are. A Jew, a servant of a Kadosh Baruch Hu, grows permanently. Grows constantly. That requires to end certain relationships, to make t- difficult decisions, and sometimes to have shed a few tears. Why did we mention Gainom? Why is Gainom mentioned in Alacha? Why is it mentioned all across all spectrums of the Torah? To remind us that it's either you cry here or you cry there. You can cry here about the difficulty of the changes that you need to make. And the relationship, lose a deal that's not allowed, and so on and so on. You cry a little bit, it's hard. But it's better to cry here than cry over there because you made the wrong decision. This is why reward and punishment, genom, all of these things are a necessary part of Da'at Torah, are a necessary part of Alacha, are a necessary part of day-to-day Jewish life, are a necessary part of, of simply Avodat Hashem. It's not that you need to constantly be uh, 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 thinking about the gruesome and the horrible things, but you do need to be aware that there is a consequence for everything that we do. That in itself makes you spiritually healthy. The second you know that there's a consequence for every single thing that you do, both positive or negative, that in itself makes you spiritually healthy. Now you can make an educated decision. The second you lose... The, 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 the connection to that, the second you think that, no, no, there's, you don't even think about a consequence, automatically you could assume that you're on autopilot but for the wrong team. So these are some of the things that I thought, Be'ezot Hashem, are going to help us a little bit. Help us a little bit, get to where we need to be, past this uh, next chapter of tshuva, next chapter of life, next chapter of learning, next chapter of teaching. <laughs> We have to get to a point where we realize that, okay, maybe some of us are not disgusted by our sins. Maybe some of us are. But we all have to aspire to be there. We have to all get to a point where we realize the truth about all of the lusts, all of the sins, all the things that a person was part of. 
and get to a point where you know the real truth about it, the, con- the real consequence of all of it, the real uh, significance of, of, of living a life that's against God. Get to a point where you're not just proud of being on a good path. And you're not just disgusted of everybody else that's not on the right path. But you're, grat- you're grateful to HaKadosh Baruch Hu to give you the opportunity to be on the right path. And you're also crying for the rest of Klal Yisrael that's not. This Rabotai is the next chapter of where each and every single one of us needs to get to. You have to get to a point where you're not just happy about where you're at. And you're not uh, just disgusted by whoever is not on it. You're sad for them. When you start becoming sad for them, you won't be sad for yourself for not being there. Because that in itself is already contradictory. Bezat Hashem, this too will get us to that point. This too will get more and more people to that point. Anyone that wants uh, USB, CDs, books, and so on, it's all in the back. With with that being said, you guys could all ask questions. And Bezat Hashem will uh, answer as much as we can. Kavut. Yes. Should a person that's in the middle of conversion process do tikkun chatzot? Somebody asked me that yesterday. Um, if you're doing all of the basics, meaning you're praying three times a day, you're learning every day, you're doing all the things that you need to do as if you are uh, already completed, you already completed your conversion, and you're already living uh, your frum life, and tikkun chatzot is something you're adding to it. Fine, there's no problem in doing it. Uh, but if it's going to come at the cost of learning Torah, uh, then no. Then it's better to learn Torah. It's better if it comes at the cost of uh, doing one of the things that you're obligated to do, then no. So it all depends. But if it's, if it's in addition to what you're doing, it's no problem. If it's uh, uh, going to replace something, no. I mean, I generally think that the, one of the difficulties that people have with, in the process of conversion is that they want to move too fast into things that are not obligatory. So you have to just, you, everybody know, has to know themselves. If you know that you're doing everything that you're supposed to do, and that you're obligated to do, and this is just an addition to it, chabud, go for it. But uh, there's a, uh, it's, it's, it's like a lot of other things, it's practice. It's practice. So if I were you, if I were anybody else that's going to process of, of conversion, I'd use the extra time to learn more. But again, that depends how much a person, if the person's already learning five, seven, ten hours a day, then yeah, that, uh, that 20, 30 minutes is not going to be a big deal. But if the person's only learning an hour a day, two hours a day, that 20 and 30 minutes is very valuable. So it's better to, to use it to learn. Next? Yes? If a Christian is trying to uh, missionize, proselytize, uh, you know, you have to understand that they're, they're not necessarily looking for specific clothing. They're looking for anybody that gives them attention. Uh, the more attention you give them, uh, the more they're going to, you know, feel like this is a worthwhile endeavor. They feel like if you, when you say no to them, you're really saying yes. Like criminals. 
criminals that justify rape and murder and so on. She said no, but really she meant yes. That's the mentality of somebody that's an idol worshiper. So you have to understand that the more attention you give them, you debate them, you, uh, you know, converse them, you try to convince them, to them that just simply means they need to invest a little bit more time in you in order to break you. I see sometimes they, they have internal videos that people send me of, of certain missionaries and you see how they talk. They're literally like, like brainwashed, but it's, it's almost like a, it's a sickness. So to reason with them is almost impossible. Almost impossible, especially when they're on the job. Especially when they're in, the, you know, like they're in that mode. In fact, the Gemara says that uh, there was two Chachamim and uh, they got into a fork on the road. And they had to go from, you know, from one point to another point, but they had, to, they had two directions. On one road was a prostitution house where once in a while the girls would come out to, collect, to get customers. Another, house, another uh, road was a church. So the Chachamim said, oh, which, which road should we go to? So one of the Chachamim says, let's just go by uh, the, uh, the idol worshipping place and, you know, we'll just pass by. What's... Uh, Surely we don't want to go by the prostitu prostitutes. Chacham says, no, Alachayez, you go by the section, the, the, the direction of the prostitutes. Why? And next to that, there are next to those, the house of the prostitutes. Number one, we don't know for sure if they're going to come outside. Number two, we can always close our eyes. So yeah, but why can't we do the same thing with, with idolatry? He says, no, minut mashcha. Idolatry, missionizing, in itself, in its nature, creates so much tuma that just it existing already creates a certain damage on a person's neshama. Meaning, you don't need to talk to them in order for it to damage you. You don't need to be inside the church in order for the church to damage you. So, the point is, when a person is in that world, they're, they're, they're spiritually sick to the highest level. So, for you to reason with them while they're in the, the, the deepest part of it, where in essence they're, they're missionizing, is very, very difficult. Very, very difficult. I personally think it's impossible, uh, at least in one session. You could potentially argue with somebody and, and try to calm them down, try to reason with them in order to get them to, you know, reconsider things, but to completely abandon their ways, I personally don't think it's possible. Uh, so for you to tell them, listen, we have a different faith, we believe in, you know, in, in, uh, in Torah, we believe this, that's only going to take more time of your day. You're not going to change their mind. And all it's going to do is take away time that's, I don't, you know, it's valuable, that you can use for other things. So if, you, if part of your uh, uh, goal is to try to convince people to adopt Judaism, to, to, to become observant and so on, I would recommend using it with other people that are not in there, that, that are not missionizing. Because if they're just, you know, like most Christians and most people in general, they're less affiliated, less religious, at the very least they're not fanatic, they're usually more of a, uh, you know, they're, they're more open to, uh, to uh, other ideas. Whereas when a person is a fanatic, it's very, very hard to break them. It's possible. I've done it once, but uh, I, I don't recommend it. It's like one of those things where don't do it at home. Uh, it's very, very, it's very time consuming. Uh, and it's also very difficult for them to abandon it. Like they have to go to a much bigger transformation in life and ideology than the average person. So... My recommendation is, if, if it's, to, it's for the purpose of trying to encourage people to do good things and, and to adopt Torah, I would choose different customers. If it's to, you know, what to do with those specific people, simply walk away without saying anything. As if they don't exist. 
Because the second you give them any attention, that's it. For them, oh, that's it. It's, it's like, a, you know, it's like the, somebody goes fishing and all of a sudden there's a little part of the water that starts, you see some bouncing, you're not really sure whether it's a fish or a crocodile or a shoe, but there's something there. You're going to put your rod, you know, you'll put your, your, your line over there. Why? There's something there. There's something there. So in essence, the same concept. Once they see that you're reacting, automatically they say, okay, that's the customer. And they can put all of the energy in the world on you. They'll call their friends. Before you know it, you have an entire church around you. What do you need that for? So it's, a, uh, it's, it's the best, best thing to do is simply not talk to them. Uh, same thing if people come to your house. People come to your house, don't debate them. Don't tell them, listen, there's mistakes in your New Testament. The Torah says 70, you say 75. You, and, you know, everybody likes to repeat the same exact mistakes that have been repeated a million and a half times. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's, they, they, it's, they're not thinking straight. They're, they're, they're not thinking in, with logic. They're thinking with emotions. So you, you could tell them, listen, I have 87,000 proofs why your New Testament is wrong. Their typical response is, well, then who's the suffering servant then? It's like, did you listen to anything I just said? Like, I just gave you a th- like 80,000 proofs why your book is toilet paper and it's used. Like, like it's, but who's the suffering servant? And Daniel 9, like, it's like you're talking to almost like a monster. You're not really sure what it is. Usually something has to happen in their life on their own in order for them to like break that shell in some way. Like it happens and there are many Christians that convert to Judaism. There's more Christians converting to Judaism than any other, other, other religion. But something, it's, it's usually not from like a direct interaction. It's usually something happens. They want something on their own. They have, you know, like this mercy from heaven. I don't know. There's something happens where it's like over time they break. It's not like a sudden thing. So, but if they're on the job, it's, uh, it, it's just, it, even if it works, it'll be 10 times the amount of energy that you would spend on anybody else that's, that's you know, halfway normal. Uh, so I'm highly, uh, you know, I'm all for helping people convert and helping people to identify the truth, whether they're Jews or Gentiles. If, if you have somebody in front of you that's a decent human being, for sure you should show them the truth. I've had people that were exterminators coming to pick up some dinosaur lizard thing that lives in this, you know, that came into my house in Florida. We have all these dinosaurs in the streets. Uh, they call them iguanas, right? Iguanas? So one of these dinosaurs came into my house one time. So the exterminator was this nice, you know, nice lady. She looked like Crocodile Dundee. And anyway, long story short, I gave her a Kiru package. And Bo Hashem had actually helped this woman. She has a little son. She's a single mother. And, you know, she started like, you know, she's non-Jewish. But she ended up like, you know, starting to learn Torah because of it. So, yes, I'm all for helping people that are, you know, decent human beings that are, uh, you know, that are, have an interest but no clue where to go right or left. That is great. But someone that's on a mission of idolatry, when they're on the job, it's just a waste of effort. It's a waste of effort. You have to wait for a different opportunity. Yeah. The second part of that question too, our mom, or my mom, uh-huh. children's grandmother, she's a, still a Christian and we're trying to honor her and she needs help. She's older. Yeah. She lays a lot of guilt on me for our choices and things and doesn't understand. We keep our children out of her house because of the idolatry and stuff in there. But it's a constant, you know, contention with her. And, um, she drives over to visit us and stays in the driveway. She refuses to come to our house anymore, etc. Uh, Wait, she refuses to come into your house or you refuse to go to our house? We, uh, we don't let our children go into her house because of the JC all over the wall. But why, why wouldn't she come to your house then? 
she comes to visit the grandkids on the driveway and talk to them for a minute. I know, but why wouldn't she? Why wouldn't she go into your house? Like, what's the problem going? My beliefs aren't good enough for yours. Oh, okay. It's like retaliation. Got gotcha. you. Okay. But she, uh, you know, asks for help and things, and we're obligated. We feel that we should help her out too, so we go there and help her a lot. But it's usually chaperoned with, you know, my wife or I and whatnot. Right. We just don't know what to do. Cause, I mean, is there a better way? I mean, should we write her off completely? Like, it's my mom. It's, it's... Um, if she is causing damage to your marriage, to your belief in God, uh, then there is no obligation to help her. Uh, because it says even for you know natural born Jews, uh, you know sometimes we'll uh, or or you know we'll have you know Jewish parents but that are anti Torah, that are against the Torah, and uh, you know tell them listen, uh, you're not obligated to honor your father or your mother that's telling you to go against the Torah. He goes no, but you have ten commandments. He says, yes, you have ten commandments, but the ten commandments specifically say, honor your mother and your father, observe Shabbat. I am God. So the sages explain, why is it these three things in a row? It says, honor your mother and your father. In another place it says, honor your father and your mother. In another place it says, honor your mother and your father. So it says, honor your mother and your father. Number one, to show you that you have to honor your mother and your father the same. Number two, is that you have to honor your mother and your father, but you also have to observe the mitzvot, which like Shabbat is one of them. And, but always remember, I am God. Meaning that if... You, your parents, those same parents that you're obligated to honor, tell you to violate my mitzvot, you're not allowed to listen to them because I am God. Because God comes before your parents. So, as much as we need to honor our parents, there is a line. If they are against God, we're not allowed to listen to them. We're not allowed to listen to them. So, if your mom tells you that uh, you know, she wants you to go believe in, uh, in some idol, she wants you to eat not, you know, things that uh, are problematic, and so on and so forth, then there is no mitzvah of honoring her uh, to that. Now, if she tells you, go you know, make me coffee, you know, give me a ride to the doctor, for sure, yeah, go definitely help her. There's no, there's no problem in doing that. Uh, but uh, again, it's, it, you, have to, you have to do things in a calculated way. If you see that she is respectful of your beliefs, then it makes it easier to, uh, to live a, a life even if you have different beliefs. If she's a missionary, which is very common, uh, you know, people that are you know, religious uh, in Christianity, they're all missionaries. But it's just you know different amount of energy that, that some of them have. Some have more, some have less. Sometimes your religiosity will make her more religious. Meaning, she is not religious until you became religious, but in a different faith. And all of a sudden, she cares about her faith. So that could happen sometimes. So again, you have, to, you have to try to eliminate the talk of religion altogether, if possible. But that's also going to make the relationship very empty. Because there's not, else, not much else to talk about. Uh, but you have to do too, you know, as much as you can. But the second you see that it's creating problems for your life, your responsibility is over. You have, uh, you know, once it creates, uh, there's, there's problems between you and your wife, or you start seeing that one of the kids, or you, or anybody else is starting to have doubts in God and things like that, that's, it. that's, that's when the responsibility is over, and if you want to be nice, you can send somebody else to help her, but you have no, no responsibility. You're not allowed to put your life at risk for somebody else. It's not, uh, their, their blood is not any redder than theirs, especially if they're not, you know, following God. Uh, but if they're reasonable... They're open to uh, discussion, or at the very least, they're respectful of what you believe. Then there's no problem. There's no problem. 
The way to change those types of people, and last thing I would add, you didn't ask about, but I'll just tell you the goal, everybody wants to change their family. Everybody wants to change their parents from, you know, idolatry to Torah or their parents from, you know, money to, you know, everybody wants to help their, their family and so on. The number one most effective way to help other people, strangers, is to give them, bring them Torah. Bring them our shulim, our USBs, our CDs, things like that. But that's strangers. The number one way to affect your family is not always with Torah. It's with your life. When they see that your decisions led you to a better life, where all of a sudden now you're much more calm, now you're more generous, now you're more loyal, now you, you, you feel better, now things are improving in your life, but not just for a short period of time, but for an extended period of time, and not just you, but also your kids, so it's not just a show. If it's just you, it looks like it's me, you know, he's faking it. But if you see the whole house is changing, everything is improving, it's only a matter of time before they say, you know what? Whatever it is that they're doing, it's working. It's working. I, I, I don't agree with it, but I agree with the outcome. And they ask you questions about it, and that could be the, uh, the greatest thing. But that takes a lot, a lot of time. It's not six months. It could take five years. It could take ten years. It could take, you know, different people, different things. But that's the thing. Sometimes people think, listen, if I teach them the same thing that I learn, they're going to, you know, they're going to... No, it doesn't always work that way. You could show ten people the sky and tell them what color it is, and, you know, they'll all give you a different uh, shade of blue. Different people have different perspectives. So sometimes it's just they know you in a certain way, and now you're changing. They don't really know why. They're thinking maybe it's a, it's a phase. Uh, maybe, maybe you're losing your mind. So they're not really sure what to do with you. So you're telling them it's because of this teacher or because of this Torah. They're not buying it because they have their truth already. They're not willing to replace it. So the only way they're going to you know, even question themselves is once they see that your system works better than theirs. But that takes time. Until then, you have to like, you know, keep it, uh, you know, maintain it to a certain extent if it's possible. Uh, but your number one, uh, you know, biggest key of efforts should be strangers. You'll have much more customers. You'll have much more uh, uh, success. Strangers are willing to listen to strangers. They're not willing to listen to family. I can call certain family members of mine. They'll talk to me about any subject except Torah. Anything, I talk about business, stock market, uh, whatever you want. But once I tell them, listen, what about Shabbat, what about this? Yeah, yeah I'm busy, I got to go, I got wait, wait, we just talked for three hours, you weren't busy. What happened? But then I could talk to a stranger. Listen, I, I want to call you. Before I finish saying I want to call you, they're calling me already. Because they're interested in talking about whatever it is I want to talk about. Why? They're strangers. So there isn't, you know, so, so that's, you also have to know that there's, you have to, you have a certain amount of energy, spend it the right way. Don't just spend it on the people you care about the most, spend it about where it's going to work the most. And eventually the other stuff's going to work too. Yeah. Next, Mr. Sir, this side, anybody? Hmm? Oh, how would... How does one work on Midas Okay, anger. So we have a series called Igeret Aramban. There's probably a USB over there that you should get it. If not, there's one on, uh, on, on, the, on the website or the uh, YouTube channel. Is a series of about 30 or so lectures. And he talks extensively about, about kaas, about, about anger. And the root of anger is arrogance. It's, it's being arrogant. It's thinking that you are entitled, you are owed something. Why is a person angry? Because the world doesn't function according to his likings. 
He wanted this to happen and something else happened. So in essence, the person thinks that the world is supposed to work according to him. So the more a person analyzes what he's angry about and whether he really has the right to be angry about that thing, whether he's truly you know, owed this thing or he's just you know, delusional, the more he'll start realizing himself that in reality there's, there's no reason to be angry. So that's one way, to, to analyze the midah itself and analyze where is a, what's causing you anger. So if let's say for example, uh, you know, people cut you off on the highway, you know, you have road rage. Like, do you realize that God runs the world? He's the one that sent that car there? Do you realize that, you know, you're not the only car in the world? He also has to go places? Do you realize that the world road doesn't necessarily have to work according to your likings and to your speed? Like, again, more a person realizes where they stand in comparison to creation and how small they really are and not, they're not big, they're not running the world no matter how much they have. The more they'll, you know, realize that, okay, I don't need to be angry about a lot of the stuff that I'm angry about, whether it's traffic or people talking to me a certain way or whatever it is that people get angry about. The other thing is also to uh, work on emunah, emunah in Hashem. There's the, the more emunah and bitachon specifically that a person has in Hashem, uh, the, the more they'll uh, run away from, from anything connected to anger. And the reason why is because a person that has emunah, they have emunah that Hashem created the world. But a person that has bitachon, they have a belief that Hashem is micromanaging their life. That every single thing that's happening in their life has to do with God to the point where they understand and know that God is next to them at all times. So God doesn't like anger. The Gemara Masechet Shabbat says somebody that is, expresses their anger physically is like someone that brought a sacrifice to an idol. It's like So when a person thinks, oh, I'm not going to do Abu Okay, great. Thank you very much, but you got angry. Now, what about doing Abu next to God himself? No, definitely not. Well, that's what's happening every time you get angry. God is there, and you're getting angry. So the more a person has a, a, a strength and stronger emunah and bitachon, the more they'll run away from, from, uh, uh, from anger because they'll realize, again, it's not worth it. So you have a combination of analyzing where you stand altogether and also knowing that the, 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 the consequence of anger are not worth it. The last thing is, is a simple thing that I try to remind myself and anybody that has a, uh, you know, is a hot-tempered person, uh, is that anger never gets anything done in a positive way. Anger is like giving yourself poison and expecting the other guy to die. That's what anger is. It's, you know, you're angry about him saying ABC. Now, you being angry is not going to change his mind. He still did it. You being angry is not going to make him do anything. In fact, most likely, you being angry will make that person even more distant from you, more, more likely to do more bad things to you or just simply run away from you. It's anger in general doesn't ever really convince people to do things that you want them to do if they weren't going to do it even anyway. Meaning, the people that express their anger, like in business, people that are angry like to yell at people. Uh, and I remember myself doing that a lot. And, but the truth is that if I would have said it in a whispering voice, in a nice voice, in a happy voice, or in a clown voice, 
they would have listened anyway. Like, meaning that me choosing to say it in an angry voice did not help me. In fact, it hurt me. Because if I would have said it in a nice voice, they probably would have wanted to do it better. They probably would have wanted to, they would have, you know, had more excitement doing it. Or at the very least, they wouldn't uh, feel so uh, inferior. But because I chose to do it in an angry voice, they'll do it because they want to keep their job, but they're not going to put their all into it. So that's another thing that a person needs to think about, is that what's the, what's the goal? What's the objective of what you're doing? The more you think, the, more, the, the, the less angry you're going to be. Last thing I would tell you is a, something that I, uh, I learned years ago, is uh, you know, it's, if a person that's hot-tempered, but is not completely a lunatic, if you uh, uh, can, like before, you, you have to say something, you're angry, take a bottle of water, Leave the water in your mouth. You can't talk. A minute. A minute passes. If you're really crazy, two minutes. By the time two minutes pass, you don't have anything to say anymore. Why? It's enough time for the anger to go away. If, what if you don't have any water? You don't have any water? Hold your breath. Or just don't do it. Just shut your mouth. Say nothing. I'm angry, but I'm not going to say anything for two minutes. That's your rule. From now on, I'm, not, I'm angry, but I'm not going to say anything for two minutes. Two minutes pass, you forgot why you're angry. You forgot why you're angry. So again, there's different ways, different tricks to do it. But that trick is only going to work if you're doing the other stuff. And you know, it's, a, it's, it's not, it's not going to work if, you know, the other stuff is not, is not being worked on. But it's, it's definitely necessary. Next. Good. Okay, uh, yes, good. Yeah. It's free questions, by the way. Free, like the books. The Jewish single events coach to attend? Jewish single events? Wait, you mean when they have a bunch of boys and a bunch of girls uh, hanging out and maybe drinking a few cups together? Uh, according, no, if, if Orthodox Judaism, no. No, Orthodox Judaism is not, there's no, there's no mingling of uh, men and women uh, uh, in, in such a fashion where they're un, you know, unattended and they could just, the way they do it today. They used to do something that they want to compare it to during Sukkot, at the time of the Bet HaMikdash, Simchat HaBet that was the time where they used to make Shiduchim. But that's because people went there to look for someone to get married to. Not people to have a good time with. Not people to have a drink with. Not people to, you know, Shem uh, with. So, and also, it didn't involve drinking and getting drunk and things like that. Today, you know, it's a very big money maker. Uh, so they'll tell you, listen, shiduch opportunity, all the boys and all the girls come. So everybody that's looking for a good time, it goes there and they'll have a few drinks. They'll get some free stuff and they'll have a wife for a day or two or three days and tell Ima, I found a, a Jew, nice Jewish girl a week later. Hey, how's that Jewish girl? Oh, you, you still remember? Nah, nah, she wasn't for me. Yeah, but she was for you for the first two days. So who's, who's responsible for all that? Not just the person, but everybody that arranged that party. You want to find a, a, a woman, you have to find it the old-fashioned way. You have to go to a shiduch, somebody introduce you to her, that, uh, are, you know, you go to a shatchanit, or a family friend, or somebody like that, and, you know, meet somebody in a kosher way. You go, you, uh, they, they, you, know, you see a profile of some kind, you meet, you talk a few times, have some coffee, 
have two, three, four, ten, fifteen dates, however is required, without ever touching each other, without ever putting each other in a compromising position, with an intention to get married, and that's it. But don't put yourself in a situation where it's really almost impossible for, for any shiduch, that's a kosher shiduch, to come out of those parties. Number one, because there's a lot of sins there. Number two, because you're giving people too many options. You're giving people too many options. I have a friend, student of mine, he just moved from India to Canada. Now, I don't know if you've been to India, India's a big country, but they don't have the same choices as the Western world. So when he came to Canada, it's very similar to America, and he went to the supermarket. And he says to me, why do they have so many cereals? And he said, why do they have so many different types of rice? And why do they have so many different types of soaps? Like, how many ways can you clean yourself? How many ways can you eat breakfast? How many ways? Like, everything has 500 choices. So what does that mean? That means that nobody knows. They're just, they're guessing. Today they're going to buy this. Next week they're going to buy something else. No one's committed to anything. And that's what food. Needless to say, with people, people go to a place, imagine everybody here was single looking for somebody. You can't have your mind on any one particular person. You're just looking at anyone that's going to pay attention to you. But if somebody else that, uh, you know, that's more attractive, you will pay attention to you, all of a sudden you forget about this person. Hey, listen, you know, very nice talking to you for two hours, but I see she's winking at me. Hold on a second. And all of a sudden you just abandon this girl because you care less. It's just it's whoever's getting attention. So there's no way that you could give the Abat Israel the respect that she deserves, the attention that she deserves, and there's no way that the Bat Israel can make a legitimate choice that you are a decent human being when there's a bunch of beasts that are looking to eat her at the same time. She's just trying to survive the poor girl. You're trying to hunt, and, and everybody's trying to get something. It's an unhealthy way to do things. There's a much, much more kosher way to do things. It's one-on-one. It's through an uh, old-fashioned way system. And it works, Baruch Hashem. I know that people want to get married yesterday, and, and I, I, I'm all for people getting married as soon as possible. But when we start cutting corners, eventually we end up with a, with a different shape. And that's unfortunately what's happening in, in, in the world today is that everybody's like, oh, this is shiduch problem, so let's bring the secular club world into the religious world. You know, in the clubs, what do they do? We go to a club, there's music, there's boom, 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 there's drinking, there's everybody's high, and uh, that's it. That's the outcome. So what are they doing? Oh, let's just make everybody Jewish. So that way, at least it's a mitzvah. No, no. No, this is, this is turning Jewish women into prostitutes. So you have to run away from stuff like that. And it doesn't matter if there's any rabbi that says, okay, there is no permission to do stuff like that. It's, you have to know that according to halacha, there's a certain way to do things, and, and it's, there's no gadol that is said that these things are okay. Now, of course, I know that there are certain people that are saying nothing about it, and it's not because they agree. It's because they're so uh, sad from the amount of intermarriage that's out there that they figured, you know what, it's better that at least they end up with Jews than they end up with non-Jews. And that's really not the right logic. It's a, it's, it's, it's mitzvah ba ba'avera. It's a, it's a mitzvah that comes in the way of sin. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is Mezavek Zivugin. He's the one that's responsible for everybody to, to find their Zivug. And if a person works on themselves, HaKadosh Baruch Hu can send them the Zivug or her the Zivug all the way to their front door. You don't need to cut any corners for that and end up with a different shape. It's, it's a, I know it takes longer, and it's, but you don't need to help God. You'll definitely uh, do it in a, in a better way. And I, and I, th- I think that 
eventually people will realize that the amount of sins that come from those parties, those events, are not worth it. I've already had a, at least a half a dozen cases of, uh, of girls that ended up getting raped as a result of these, uh, these uh, shiduch parties or whatever it is, these events. The girls getting raped or they end up, all types of horrible things that happen in nightclubs. Now if you talk to me 25 years ago and some girl cried that, uh, that somebody did something bad to her or some guy cried that somebody else did that to him, I said, hey, hey, you signed up for it. You went out at 1 o'clock in the morning. You went out and took some uh, drugs in the middle of the night. You went out and looked for whatever you could find. You signed up for it. You signed up for that. That's what you got. Don't tell me that, oh, it's not fair that somebody put something in my drink. Who goes out? What normal person goes out at 3 o'clock in the morning? What, like, what, what, what did you think was going to happen? Now, that's in a secular world. That's in the against the Torah world. The problem is when that arrives to our world, to the Torah world, you don't have it the same, the same uh, thing to the... What do you, you know, the girl's not going for that. The guy's not supposed to do that. So when the, when the rabbis or the leaders of the community are actually creating that, then you have a corrupt system. Then you have a corrupt system that you have to, find, you have to run away from. You have to run away from as far as possible. Uh, and, and not fall into it because it's, it's definitely not going to end up in any good. Yes, next. Any? Uh, if it's for if it's for Jews, uh, Jews are not allowed to have uh, statues or sculptures of a full body of person of a person, or a, a full body of an eagle, or a full lion, or an ox, or a, uh, like a bull. Those are the four uh, uh, kings of creation. That Hashem instituted in the world as the king of the beasts, the king of the uh, 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 birds, and so on. Uh, so these are the four images that are on the Kiseh Kavod, the throne of glory of God. There's an image of Yaakov Avinu. He represents all of mankind. Uh, there's the image of an eagle. There's an image of a bull. There's an image of a lion. So those, three, those four things, not allowed to own them. That's for Jews. Uh, everything else, a uh, owl, uh, I don't know, a parrot, a lizard, or whatever other statue is not really problematic. Some say that it's really uh, it's forbidden to make a statue or a sculpture of uh, of a globe of Earth uh, because some people, uh, you know, in the old days would turn that into idolatry. You look at the Gemara Masechet Avodah It says that uh, you're not allowed to make the statue of a globe because there were uh, people that would make a statue of a person holding a globe as if this person owns the world and runs the world. So they said, yeah, but Rabban Gamliel himself, he teaches uh, uh, from the globe about the rotation of the moon. So obviously he owns a globe. He owns a moon. So how could he do it? He says, no, you're not allowed to make it, but you're allowed to own it. So if she didn't make it yet, don't make it. If she made it, she's allowed to keep it. But that's again, more, there's more stringencies for the Jewish world. Uh, of course, it's forbidden to have a statue of anything that's, an, uh, that's connected to idolatry. 
Anything that's connected to idolatry. Not that it's a symbol of idolatry, that it was used for idolatry. Meaning, there are religions that idolize everything. So you can't say everything that's connected to idolatry in some ways is idolatry. Like, for example, elephants, or cows, or, uh, or, or mice, or rats, or, or, or even uh, uh, you know, uh, fecal matter, uh, human waste. It are different things that certain religions you know, pray to. So that doesn't turn them into idolatry. That's just people are stupid. Now, if they, if they actually pray to that thing or serve that thing, then you can't use it. But if you're just making, I don't know, let's say a, a mouse a statue or a drawing of a mouse, that's not a problem. But if somebody prayed to it, then it becomes a problem. Now, when it comes to, uh, uh, when it comes to non-Jews, there's more leniency. There's much more leniency because they don't have an obligation as far as specific images. They just have an obligation where they're not allowed to serve anything other than God. So you're allowed to make whatever you want to make uh, so long as you don't serve it. You don't start turning it into God. Uh, same concept with uh, anything else, whether it's uh, stamps, cars, baseball cards, uh, you know, bikes, whatever it is that people collect. Everybody has a collection. I think the main thing that uh, a person should... Uh, uh, always keep in mind is number one, don't turn it into your, the purpose of your life because it's not. Whatever collection is, whatever passion you have, it's, it's good. It's good to have certain things you're excited about. It's good to have hobbies. It's good to have your, you know, even, even stuyot, even nonsense is good to a certain extent to, for some people. They need a little bit of nonsense in their life. The younger they are, the more nonsense they need. The older they are, the less nonsense that they need and they, they have less time to waste. But you know, to waste your time is necessary to a certain extent. But don't turn the waste of time into your life. Like if somebody has a hobby of they like to watch nature shows. They like to watch eagles fly and hunt monkeys off of trees in Panama. Fantastic. They, uh, they like uh, watching, you know, octopuses hunt in the middle of the, the deep ocean. Fantastic. Don't turn that into the focus of your life. You want to spend five minutes a day, 15 minutes a day doing it? Enjoy. But don't turn that into your whole house and life is full of octopuses and, and mice and, and eagles. And that's what, you, that's what uh, your whole purpose in, in the world is. It's okay to, to have some of these things. Uh, but it's, again, it's to a certain extent. Same thing with cars. There's nothing wrong with collecting cars. Nothing wrong with, with fixing cars. There's nothing wrong with driving cars. Nothing wrong with having a nice car. But don't turn it into your life. You know, it's, it's, it's good to do it. You can make a living out of doing it. It's, a, it's, it's certainly a valuable profession. It's, there's no problem with it per se. But there is a problem with anything that you turn into your God or you turn into your whole life. Meaning, if, unless it's learning Torah, too much is bad. And even, you know, meaning, too much food, food is good. Too much food, no good. Intimacy, necessary. Uh, too much, no good. Uh, 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 even drinking water. Drinking water is good. Too much, you drown and die. Uh, so, so anything that's too much is no, is no good. So again, you're allowed to do a lot. But not, don't make it everything. Don't make it everything. Don't become fanatic about it to the point where you lose your, uh, your, uh, uh, your head. Uh, but uh, as far as her making sculptures, it's, it's certainly uh, perfectly fine. Uh, the, uh, the cars is perfectly fine, as long as it does not make them abandon the rest of their purpose in life. If, uh, if they're still connected to, to reality, and it's no problem. You need, uh, generally speaking, you need something, something to do. You need something, something to do to make a living in also. And these are two things that could turn into a profession. 
usually people that go into those professions are people that are passionate about it by nature. Meaning that they're not doing it just because they're making a living, they're doing it because they're passionate about the profession. So it's definitely a, a decent profession too. Yeah. Anything else? Going once, twice. Yeah. Okay, last one. One quick one. I'm sorry. Okay, last one. Yeah. Uh, uh, amen. We, we were confused whether or not we can say amen or not. This is yeah, amen, amen means, amen means uh, uh, or in English, amen means, um, it's an acronym. It means El Melech Neeman, the, uh, the, the God, the King that's reliable, that's trustworthy, meaning whatever he said, he will do. He said he will reward you for good, he will reward you. He said he will punish you for bad, he will punish you. Although he doesn't do it instantly, he will do it eventually. And a person that says Amen is saying Amen to a certain blessing. Why? Uh, bless you Hashem that you gave us such and such. So in essence, you're blessing Hashem that He's the one that commanded us to do this. And because we're doing what He said, He will give us the... Uh, he's reliable to reward us for it at some other point. So in essence, that's the uh, thing. And, uh, and everybody's allowed to do it, whether Jews, Gentiles, everybody can say Amen. It's not a problem. Okay, Rabotai, thank you very much. By the way, a reminder for everybody, uh, the event in uh, Israel is going to be next week. We're going to try Bezot Hashem to have it uh, online also, uh, live. I'm not sure if we're going to succeed or not. That's only in the hands of a Kadosh Baruch Hu. Any of you that want to contribute for that event can. Any of you that want to sponsor USBs can. We're going to do the raffle right now that I'm sure some people online are looking to, uh, to, to see who's, who's winning. Uh, this raffle is going to have three winners. Three winners. The, uh, these are the people that sponsored at least $1,000 worth of USBs. Uh, and some of them chose to give out the USBs themselves, and we mailed it to some of them. Some of them chose for us to give them out for them. Uh, but uh, either way, each one of these people already won because they, they have at least 1,000 USBs under their, uh, you know, under their name. Now, as far as the winners of the raffle, the first place winner is going to be uh, a person that uh, is going to get a, a ticket of, um, to Israel. If you are the winner in this room or online, please contact me ASAP on WhatsApp with your information, your date of birth, and all the other details so we can buy you the flight ticket. Uh, because, you know, the, the event is a few days from now. Uh, so we don't have that much time. Uh, so send me your information and uh, we'll get you the uh, ticket. Um, and then, um, or oh, we can work it out where you could just pretty much tell me that the, the, you could fill out the information, show it to me, and I'll just send you the money. Whatever way it works, the, uh, the person, uh, first place winner, gets a ticket to Eretz Israel. You'll have to find a place to stay uh, on your own. I'm sure there's plenty of places that you could find. Probably not in Yerushalayim. You're probably going to have an easier time finding a place uh, in other uh, uh, cities. Uh, but either way, that's on you. How long you stay, that's also on you. I don't really care how long you stay. You can stay for a day. You can stay for a year. It's not, it's not up to me. Second place is going to be a person that wins the, um, uh, the big talit. Do we have the talit? It's in here? Where? Ah! Hmm. There you go. Okay, so we have three kinds of taliot. This is... Yeah, I think I showed one in a lecture, right? Yeah, 
So these are cool taliyot. They're really nice. They have a uh, talad. They have three different ones. One is blue. One is small diamonds. One is big diamonds. Long story short, they're all very, very beautiful. Uh, so that's second place. Second place of the raffle wins the talit. If you're one of them, take one. If you're not one of them, you're, you're somebody on, online, send me a message, and we'll uh, send it to you uh, to the house. I actually think I wrote the names on the uh, raffle tickets anyway, so I'll know who you are. And third place is going to be one of the cups. That's also here? Okay, so I'm not going to do the whole thing again. All right, so, all right, so let's see. Uh, uh-huh. Okay, first place. See what it is. Zero zero four eight zero three four. Zero zero four eight zero three four. Okay, this is actually Jonathan. Jonathan, I don't, I don't think he's here. I think he's uh, okay. So Jonathan one, Jonathan. I'm gonna see you in Israel. Okay, so Jonathan's first place winner. Uh, second place. Let's see. Okay, this is also a person that's not here. Uh, I think I don't think so. I'm bad with names. Zero zero four eight zero two six. Zero zero four eight zero two six. Last name is Hayun. I don't think he has a. Okay, so he is gonna get the talit. Is that Hashem? And third place. Let's see. Ah, that's a. Uh, you came here last week. Uh, next time. Uh, zero zero four eight zero two seven. The rabbi friend of mine. Where is he? I think he's probably okay. Zero zero four eight zero two seven. That's Rabbi Bo. He was here last time with his son and uh, friend. Uh, they just started Kila in uh, Honduras. So, good addition to the Kila. Okay, that's third place. I did my best. I, uh, either way, whoever is sponsoring the uh, USBs is uh, certainly going to be a winner because those things work. But I've already gotten some good feedback from them, uh, the people that, um, that uh, bought them. Uh, oh, and anybody that wants to see the tickets that they don't trust me, they think I... <laughs> tickets. And that's it, Rabotai. I'm going to be gone for a little while. I don't know how I'm going to do Shurim over there, English, Hebrew, all that stuff. Not really sure how long, when, why. I'll try. I'll obviously try to stay in touch to a certain extent. Um, what I'm going to also try is to start answering more questions on the app again. So there's going to be, uh, that's Bezot Hashem going to start being a little bit more uh, active. And uh, we'll continue working, we'll continue learning, we'll continue teaching, we'll try to get some extra Kedusha and energy from Eretz Yisrael. They, uh, they have a lot of plans for me over there that uh, I don't know what they have ready, but it seems like it's going to be a lot of work, not a vacation. But Bezrat Hashem, Bezrat Hashem, Na'asem and Astiyah, thank you again everybody for coming, thank you for the support. HaKadosh Baruch Hu Yivarechot, Abikol Mikol Kol, Chaim Arukim, Shlemim, Eleim Torah, Mitzvot, Gminuch HaZadim, Nachadu Bacha, Parnasah B'Sheva, and Bezrat Hashem, we'll continue to learn together for many, many years. Kol Tu, Bacha V'Azdacha.
Baruch everybody. Very happy to announce a major event coming up in Eretz Yisrael. This event is going to be unlike any other we've done as an organization. Last year we had a group of uh, young guys that completed the entire Shas, Bavli, and the Mishnayot in a single year. This year we're going to have the entire foundation of the Oral Torah completed in a single night. Uh, our own dear Ephraim uh, and other Talmudim of the organization. In a single night we'll have the completion of the Shas Bavli, Shas Mishnayot, the Zohar Kadosh, Zohar Chadash, Tikkunah Zohar, and the Shulchan Aruch. Years and years of toil, lots of effort is coming to fruition, and uh, in a single night, all of it will be completed to sanctify Kadosh Baruch Hu's name. This is going to be a night where many Rabbanim, many Tzadikim will be joining us at this event. There'll be hundreds and hundreds of people at the event in Eretz Yisrael, uh, including the Rishon Etzion, Rabbi Tzachak Yosef, of course, our own very dear Rabbi Fahim Kachlon. I myself will also be joining coming to Eretz Yisrael for the first time in many years to join this monumental event, this monumental Kiddush Hashem, in order to sanctify Kadosh Baruch Hu's name, to show him how much we love his Torah, how dedicated we are to his Torah, and to be able to, Be'ezrat Hashem, give chizuk to Am Yisrael in another way. Be'ezrat Hashem, Yirgun, Be'ezrat Hashem, mit'ated la'asot kenes gadol, shama yeh siyum al ikarei ha-Torah shebe'al-peh, shese siyum kol ha-Talmud Bavim, siyum kol ha-Shisha Sidra Mishnah, siyum kol ha-Zohar הקדוש בתיקוני הזוהר וסיום כל השולחן ערוך. בדרך כלל לוקח זמן כדי לסיים את כל הספרים הללו, 30 שנה, 40 שנה, ובסייעתא דשמיא ארגון בעזרת השם עושה את הכנס לכל כלל ישראל. כולם מוזמנים. We're looking forward for uh, this event. We're also looking forward to seeing some of you that are going to be joining us. There are going to be some sponsorship opportunities for anyone that wants to uh, be able to be a part of it. Uh, and of course, there'll be an uh, opportunity for any of you that want to join us, uh, one way or the other. Uh, last but not least, there will also be a raffle that we'll be uh, announcing very soon for anyone that wants to uh, join the raffle and also be able to do Kiruv at the same time. The winner of the raffle will win a uh, flight ticket to Eretz Yisrael uh, and be able to join us at the event. So uh, please look out for more news. Looking forward to seeing you at this event. And Bezad Hashem, Naseh, Venetsliach.